You understand the meaning of the word foreboding? As in badness is happening right now. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Far too kind. Well, you guys are a hell of a duet here. Why'd you start harmonizing? Can I get an encore? Do you want more? Cook and roll with the Brooklyn boys. So for one last time, I need you. Because lobsters live for over 100 years. Now what the hell are you waiting for? After me, there should be no more. So for one last time, make some noise. That's for John Lennon, you Yankee fucking cunt. They've been so about two years. This is where they all clap. Why don't you see that in the movies? Cigar in here, sir. Is that illegal? No, but it's unusual. I stole some lady's clothes. I don't like this at all. They were for this girl I met. Thank you. So, what's the story? She sings to the fishes and he catches them. You bring me luck. That would be silk. How long are you staying? Depends on you. It depends on me. You can stay forever. I'm What's it mean? She came from the water. I'm examining it for webs. Selkie women. I'm gonna stay for seven years. Unless the Selkie husband claims her back. What kind of stories are you spinning? You're a secret. You think? I know. I'm afraid, Father. Misery is easy. Happiness you have to work at. Who is this woman, Annie? Your secret, Savoy. Someone was looking for her. Who? A man. This is the most important weekend for the state of the film industry of my adult life, I think. Oh, I thought you were talking yeah. about your job for a second. No, 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 no. We're go I, I'm not sure how the strike factors into um, the stakes that are on the films that are releasing tomorrow. You're talking, uh, but you're, you're talking about tomorrow being the biggest release date of 2023. Yes. And yeah. you're referring to the fact that Michelle Hazanavicious's remake of One Cut of the Dead comes out in U.S. theaters tomorrow. That's exactly what I'm referring to. I'm also referring to the second weekend of um, second or third weekend of uh, Mission Impossible 7. It's, it's, it's technically the second weekend of Dead <laughs> Reckoning, it the, but it it's seventh? functionally the third weekend of Dead Reckoning because yeah. Dead Reckoning opened on a Sunday. That's um, what I'm saying. <laughs> here's the thing about you know we're on mic right you know i've started right yeah yeah, yeah okay yeah it's the only thing that's on my brain right now i know it's that's why i have to bring it up right off the guy which is again, the only okay, thing that's here's on my the mind thing. i know a lot of people have like poo-pooed this whole thing just sight unseen but like michelle has on a vicious remaking one cut of the dead is actually like a interesting idea I have you seen one cut of the dead i have not First of all, I think you really fucking like One Cut of the Dead, but like the thing that happened to Michelle Hazanavicious is that he won an Oscar and thought he was like a serious filmmaker and not this like weird formalist prankster, which is what he was in France, right? Like before the artist, he made the French version of the Austin Powers movies. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly the what he was best known for before. <laughs> I mean, like a par he was a parody filmmaker, a yeah, good so one, but the artist, even in its own design is is also shares a bit of that um parodic sensibility but like yes it does but like yeah. one cut of the dead is a movie that like a is full of this like bursting through the heart like love of of low budget filmmaking as a process there and b is a movie that is just like 
incredibly elaborate and belabored setups for incredible sight gags, right? In a way that, like, I can only truly compare to Tenet. <laughs> that, like, so, so okay. much of the last third of Tenet is, like, the explanation for nonsensical things that happened in the first half of Tenet, which is what <laughs> yeah. one kind of... The I don't day. even know about the last third, like, the last six minutes of the movie yeah but like is essentially what... trying to retroactively explain all that happens throughout the the opening portion of the film one one cut of the dead is it spends 30 minutes giving you out of context punchlines um and then spends like an incredibly belabored amount of time giving you the setup for the punchlines later in the movie in a way that is hilarious that all seems like a good thing for michelle has on a vicious to do it's two hours long why is it two hours long? I know this makes more sense to people who have seen one cut of the dead, which is like 80 minutes and perfect. Uh, there's no way it's good at two hours long. Um, also, a Christopher Nolan movie comes out tomorrow. Also, a Greta Gerwig movie comes also out. Also, a Greta Gerwig movie. Does Barbie come out tomorrow or does it come out later? No, it comes it out tomorrow. Friday. It comes out, it comes out tomorrow. tomorrow. They actually added some early screenings tonight. Oh, wow. like like their want to do more and more. We're getting these like Wednesday evening previews, but I want to do the double feature. Due to me not not yet being unemployed. Yes, <laughs> I I only got the tickets to um to Oppie because I just happened to be on my phone when I got the email from AMC Lincoln Center that the tickets Did you get the 70 IMAX tickets? Because I heard they're sold out for weeks. I got just the normal 70 tickets. Yeah, Yeah, I'm going to go see it normal and 70 later. I'm seeing it digital IMAX first. It's insane, though, that that fucking IMAX screen, which is huge, is sold out through like August 8th I saw or something. Yeah, I mean depending on how I feel about the film when I see it tomorrow night. I, but based on my own sentimentality towards it, which maybe is misguided, I don't know. Um, I, I do imagine I will probably attempt to see it on that screen when given the opportunity. Yeah, it's such a nice um, screen, man. I'm planning just to catch Barbie sometime over the weekend, if possible. I'll drive yeah. out to like a more remote part of New Jersey if need be. I'll catch it at like yeah. some random suburban. AMC I'm doing I'm doing both of them tomorrow. I'm doing Barbie at four and I'm doing Oppenheimer at nine because that's when it lined up. That's out here. Yeah, but that's uh, people who are telling me that you need to watch Oppenheimer before Barbie. I think are insane. Oppenheimer is an hour and ten minutes longer than Barbie and is about a genocidal act. That's that's what first I'm of all, saying. It you sounds always like watch it... the long. You always watch the shorter one first. This is what I'm telling people. So you always watch the shorter one first. It's the amuse bush, right? Yeah. If you're doing a double feature, the first one's the appetizer, the second one's the main course. And that's not to denigrate Gerwig, even though this is a movie based on, to quote the great film critic Amy Taubin. Did you see this? You're not on Twitter. Uh no, I didn't I've uh, I'm assuming I haven't seen it. Jordan Hoffman, in his review of Barbie, which went up today, put in an anecdote about running into Amy Taubin uh as they were both exiting the critic screening and he asked her what she thought of it and she like he said like she looked at me with disdain and said it's about a fucking toy um yeah it's a great great movie it's probably gonna be good i don't like that she's making a narnia movie uh two i think two yeah yeah 
Here, the thing is, is that I get why the idea of Greta Gerwig making a Narnia movie is interesting. I'm not sure I even understand why that's interesting. Oh, I think uh, it's so interesting because there's so much like teenage girl coming of age stuff in the Narnia books that feels so of a piece. I've never read Lady Bird. I've never never read read the books. I've never seen the original. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's, that's what you're not getting is there's a lot in common with like little women and Lady Bird in those books that they're about teenagers, like, moving into adulthood in a way that like the Harry Potter books also are, but don't don't land quite as interestingly. Like I get what attracts Gerwig to Narnia. It fits with her broader project, but the idea of someone making a Narnia movie for Netflix in 2024 is like a fucking kill bill sirens going off warning sign. Right. (laughs) Like that's a fucking hell from which you do not escape. Like, Everyone was like, when 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 this was announced, you know, people love to say, but what about Nolan making Batman Begins? And my answer is always 2005 is not 2023. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. that what's why someone gets hired to do this thing is a different proposition now than it was 20 years ago. You can't make the comparison, which is why Nolan has been saying, like, I'm not doing another superhero movie. Because he knows. He knows. Yeah, and I, I think when he makes that statement, I think um, by more mainstream or uh, like nerd media culture, I'm talking about like the IGNs, the Nerdist channel streams, whatever you want to call Is them. the Nerdist still a thing? I th- I think so. Um, but I think those comments by Nolan get misinterpreted as him making a judgment about the superhero genre, which, I, which is, it's he's clearly making a judgment about the state of the industry and the state of, how and why things get greenlit and how and why things get budgeted at a certain level. The last truly great superhero movie was Aquaman. No, it was across the Spider-Verse. That's animated. That's a different thing. The last truly great live action superhero movie was Aquaman. Sure. And like, but Aquaman, <laughs> really and, but, more, but, but, but let's actually, this, this is a good point because more so than the Spider-Verse movies, Aquaman is also like an insane auteurist statement, right? Yeah, it's the last time it's the last time extent. they hired someone interesting to make a superhero movie, and that guy made an interesting superhero movie. Now, I don't know if you like Aquaman Connor. I adore I, it. I I had a great time while watching it. I don't know if I would go so far as to say it's a great superhero or a great I, film. Yeah. You know it's the highest grossing DC movie, right? Like the DCEU? No. Nonsense or It's whatever? the highest grossing DC oh. movie. It is a Ever? bigger hit than The Dark Knight. That's... People sleep on this, but it is a bigger <laughs> hit than The Dark Knight. Okay. Shockingly, the superhero movie with an Asian director and an Asian lead that's like subtextually about Asian American assimilation uh play really fucking well in Asia. <laughs> no one ever talks about Aquaman as like a representation thing like Black Panther, but it is. Um anyway, the point I'm making with Aquaman is that James Wan made his weird like Otoris superhero movie. It's the fucking biggest hit of all time. They brought him in to do it again. 
and they can't fucking stop meddling with Aquaman 2, which is now this like nightmarish creaking ship disaster that DC yeah. barely wants to refuse. Did you see the news that came out today? About Aquaman? Yeah, too? Yeah. That about... that neither Batman is in it. After all that drama, neither of yeah. them are in it. Yeah. This is my point. Like, James Wan well, making an say, Aquaman I, I movie think is a win, and they can't a movie... let it be a win. I think there's a movie that we're going to talk about at some point that I wouldn't necessarily say is a great movie, but it is, they, they are letting a filmmaker kind of do what he wants. Which, sure. But that's not an interesting filmmaker is the thing. That's the problem. That's yeah. the <laughs> other thing is that like Matt Reeves is not Christopher Nolan, right? Matt Reeves is not Greta Gerwig. Matt Reeves is not Peyton Reed. Matt Reeves is not Shane Black. Matt Reeves is not Kenneth Branagh. Matt Reeves is not Zack Snyder, right? He's a fucking hack. I think regardless of how you feel about Nolan and his filmography leading up to this point, I know lots of people love Nolan. I think more people love Nolan than you would assume by looking at the internet, because I think within high, highly academic critical circles, he's, he's more diversive than he is in just the regular world and, and in the film enthusiast space. Um, And regardless of how you feel about Greta Gerwig, I, this this weekend, just after coming out of the state of the pandemic that we've been in and this kind of collapse of interesting, popular, mainstream, appealing filmmaking that kind of like dominates the 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 discourse within culture at the time, it, this this just feels like the most important four day span of my sure. adult life considering the film industry sure yeah anyway um enough hollywood talk we're going across the atlantic uh <laughs> let me let me enter we're, the podcast a film that uh, we're gonna talk about a movie that nobody has seen <laughs> all right everybody you know what show it is welcome to volpe talk the podcast about franz Rogowski and the state of the 21st century european art house leading man and this week we're back with that's <laughs> all baby it's 2020's undina baby a fucking masterpiece oh shit wait I, I wrong mean, podcast I've... i got my notes wrong Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Uh no, this is uh, above the title. Uh the podcast about Colin Farrell and the 21st century movie star. Uh I wish we were talking about Undina today, Connor. I if we if we if we did a season on Franz Rogowski. Great actor, just, just not a movie star. For a minute. <laughs> just just I is he not a movie star? No. <laughs> is it in Germany is he not a movie star? I don't think like if you so. ask a random German person what they think about him, they, they I, wouldn't have an opinion. You know how like we have this understanding of like what quote unquote international cinema is based on um like what gets exported to film festivals, but actually like Japanese cinema isn't actually like fucking Hamaguchi. It's anime. Yeah. And like, like French how, cinema like, uh... isn't actually Asayas. The highest grossing French film of all time is this like comedy about a stuck up businessman who has to go like work in the coast in a small village. Yeah. Like, or even how I like... just assume that Germans don't actually watch Christian Petzold movies because that's just how it always is. Yeah. But if you think of, of any culture that would 
that that those movies would have mainstream appeal. It seems like the Germans would Biggest would be the ones who would go after that. Films. Let's see. The highest grossing German film of all time in Germany is a 2001 Western farce film in which a bunch of German white act. It, it appears to be a parody of the Lone Ranger. Interesting. Yeah. Does it take place in Germany? Can you tell? No. I'm looking at it. No, it takes place in the United States. It's <laughs> okay. called The Shoe of Manitou. Uh, all right, we'll table. Yeah. We'll table. So it, I'm but... just it, it. It is an adaptation of a German sketch comedy TV show, and then the second highest grossing German film of all time in Germany is a straight German western from the '60s, and the third highest grossing German film of all time in Germany is a Star Trek parody from twenty from two thousand and four. I'm just um, saying. I'm just saying. If we do, if we do Rogowski at some point, yeah, um, we get to talk about Victoria. Yep, we get to talk about two, not one, but two Christian Petzold films yep. and a Terrence Malick. Two Terrence Malicks. Two Terrence Malick. Wait, you forget other... how soon you forget he's allegedly in the Jesus movie. Oh, I mean. The unreleased, maybe never finished Jesus movie. Yeah, I, <laughs> well, I, will we will we ever be able to talk about that? Is the is the question? Uh, did you see that movies going ahead and releasing passages with an NC seventeen? I did. Yeah, you know, there's a actually. There's I a, think they're I think they're releasing an unrated cut. No, they're releasing it, they it with an NC seventeen. Oh, okay, they're just they're just going ahead with it. Um, there's a lot of consternation about that, and I saw that Ira Sachs was like gave a statement saying that he thought the movie should have been an R, but he wasn't going to cut anything. But like, put, release your NC-17 movies, art house distributors. It's not going to hurt the box office of fucking Passages uh, to be an NC-17. <laughs> no one was not going to go. No one who was going to go see Passages is not going to go see the fucking Franz Rakowski, Ben Wishaw, Adele Estropopoulos, <laughs> like, threesome movie that everyone's been talking up as having insane sex scenes because it's an NC-17. Yeah, I mean, if anything, it it um it legitimizes it as yeah. as being what it is, right? If it if it came out and it was it was simply given an R rating, I think maybe you would roll your eyes a little bit and be like, okay, well, what are we actually this getting is, here? This yeah. is the problem with the NC-17 rating is that people only take the NC-17 rating if they want to be like were shocking you know like you had the one-two punch of killer joe and shame 10 years ago both movies i like a lot but then last year you have fucking blonde being like we're nc-17 because we're too insane when like babylon should have been an nc-17 that is not me being a scold this is just something i've been thinking about for six months like if we had a healthy sensible rating system babylon isn't obvious textbook nc-17 right but it yeah, can't get I, the nc-17 because it's a big studio film but blonde which is honestly a more immature and aimed at teenagers movie than babylon is like gets yeah. the nc-17 because they want the nc-17 blonde is more immature it is definitely <laughs> aimed at tiktok teens and it um 
it's less graphic than Babylon. I'm sorry, think, it is. I think Babylon's just aimed at a different genre of teenager. Yeah, Babylon is a movie for grown-ups because it's sensible and romantic. Oh, and it Sure, includes... sure. Babylon is the movie where fucking Gene Smart reads death at 24 frames per second in real time. To yeah, but it. like... <laughs> But it's the it's the teenager discovering film theory version of no, that. Yeah, that movie's so good. Uh, You're gonna come around on uh, that movie. I don't know. We're gonna do Margot Robbie on this podcast. I mean, there's a very good around. there's a very good case for us doing that movie. I'm gonna podcast. do Margot on this podcast, and you're gonna come around to it. And you're gonna be like, "Wow, this is better than The Wolf of Wall Street. This is well, better than Boogie Nights." This week, oh my god. <laughs> Out of your fucking uh, mind. <laughs> I love I love Franz Rogowski. Uh This is not a Franz Rogowski podcast. I just wanted to shout out uh, Undina, which basically has, which does literally have the exact same title and exact same reason for having the title, just in a different language. As this yeah, movie. It, very different movie than this. Very different movie. Uh, Undina minor uh, <laughs> minor similarity there. Undina. I mean, they are both dramas about a woman with the same name where the like running question through the whole movie is is she a mermaid right big picture text mermaid i know selkies aren't yeah. literally mermaids and neither are ondines but like in a big picture sense and well, this I... is obviously more tied to selkies ondina is much more of like a quiet retelling of the little mermaid in a way i find very interesting with, with without yeah without getting so far into undina I like that film is much more about more like a metaphysical relationship between that character and yes. water. While this is truly like a juggling act between is this is yes. is this story that we're watching in Andine a a, a, a act yes. of fantasy or or an act of whereas fantastical realism. Undina um, is like, what if I take? Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid as like a metaphorical structure for a story about well, lovers I think it's taking. Have you ever read the Undina myth? No, but I think there's a it's, lot of Hans Christian Andersen in that movie. I well, I think I think The Little Mermaid is a lot of it stems from the Undina myth. I think it's I think the relationship Maybe. is is um backwards from the way you're describing it. Um, then that might be true. I'm just more familiar yeah. with the the Christian Andersen story and specifically. The Christian Anderson story, not the Disney version of but it. That, that's a that's a it, it's a meditative film, and the, it's a meditative, is not a meditative. That movie is yeah. just so fucking good. Is all is. I'm saying, right? <laughs> like is. that movie's incredible. Is that his best movie or is Phoenix's best movie? Oh, because uh, I'm a bit of a transit skeptic. Um, I, I think Phoenix. I think Phoenix is his best film. Yeah, Phoenix is really yeah. good. I haven't seen any any of the ones. I love did. Transit. Um, yeah, he made a he made a, a a postman always rings twice adaptation that I really like called um Jericho. Oh, is that postman interesting? Yeah, it's, Nina, it's Nina postman House? always rings twice. Nina yep. Okay, Nina yeah, I need to watch his earlier stuff. Have you gotten a chance to see a fire yet? No, no, but I, know I mean, it just I, came out. I'm that's that's a movie that like. Before the year ends, like I will have seen that movie. I'm not yeah. there, you know. Like I, I go into every year end rush in November and December with yeah, like my majors course. that I have to get through, and that that, that will be watched um, ugh, before ugh. the year is over. I can't believe I didn't put this together from the title, but just looking at the Wikipedia uh, 
apparently Petzold has said that it's the second in a cycle where he's going to make a movie about all four classical elements. Because so, oh. it's fucking called A oh. Fire. Yeah. Well, it's I didn't a movie know that, that about was, a I didn't know. Fire. <laughs> I didn't know that was what the intention was for this. So, so Undina's his water movie. This is his fire movie. And then he's going to make an earth movie and an air movie. He's so Petzl fucking is cool. such an interesting filmmaker. He's such an interesting filmmaker. And, and he's, he's not like the, the film bro Twitter doesn't, doesn't find him as cool. No, he's, he's very or art Japanese house. Or Korean. Uh, yeah. You know what else is cool about Christian Petzl? Tell me. Uh, called Den of Thieves, one of the 10 best movies of the decade. And you know what? He's right to say it. That movie rules. <laughs> He's he said it's one of the best ten films. Yes, he loves Den of Thieves. I mean, plenty of people love Den of Thieves. Cole Bradley is one of them. I don't I don't fault anybody for loving that movie. Den of Thieves is good heat. Den of Thieves is um is that the best rapper performance in a movie? No, no, no. Eight mile. <laughs> no. Um, I don't know. I'm just well. So first of all, you have every single Ice Cube and Ice T movie, right? So like, you got Friday in there. Has Ice Ice Cube been good in anything? Three Kings, Three Kings. Haven't seen that in a long time. Yeah, I forgot he was in that. Um. Okay. I like Fifty Cent in Den of Thieves a lot. You're gonna sit here and tell me. That that is a better performance than what either Nas or DMX are doing in Belly. I think that is untrue. I don't know. What about Tupac and Juice? Or Tupac in Juice? Or yeah. fucking um Tupac in... Actually, I like Tupac in Poetic Justice more than Tupac and Juice. I more think than Tupac, and Tupac Juice. is incredible. But, okay, but there we go. What about Cuban Boys in the Hood? I don't think or he's Cube. good. I, that oh, movie is incredible, but I, I don't think no. he's good. That movie's yeah. fine. He's incredible. What about Cuban Higher Learning? Uh, what about Andre 3000 in High Life? In or semi-pro. Andre 3000 in Semi Pro? Or Andre 3000 in Showing Up? All right, yeah, I mean, those are, these are good options. I, I, I was just throwing. I was just throwing the question out there. A lot I had of not rappers at. A lot of rappers act. Um, what about a little man by the name of William Smith? Actually, his name isn't William. I think it's Willard. What about Mr. Willard Smith in Ali? What about Willard Smith in Independence Day? Bad Boys 2, Six what about Separation. Queen Latifah in What about Queen Taxi. Latifah in Chicago? All right. Who else? Let's oh, talk about oh, it, oh, man. oh, Connor, Connor, I'm sorry. I forgot this one. There's an actual answer to this question. The best performance ever given by a rapper in a movie is Mahershala Ali in Moonlight. Mahershala Ali is a rapper? He was. Oh, I didn't know For that. like a solid 10 years before he started acting. I, I, I really didn't know that. He was a real like underground conscious like hip hop guy. Interesting. Yeah. Is he, he's from the Bay Area, right? Yeah. It was like some yeah. real Bay Area like free your mind like... Other good rappers turned actors, a little man by the name of Mark Wahlberg in The Departed. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Unless we forget. Mark and Um, Mark. (laughs) You know who's always good? Who's always good? Method Man. 
That is true. Method You've Man never watched the, the Wire. You forget that Method. You don't know that Method Man was on the Wire. Yeah, but he's he's good in everything else that he's been in. As uh, well. Luda. What about most deaf. What about most deaf in Yasin Bay? Great actor. Kind of annoying sometimes, but you're, you're right. You, what about one of your favorite Spike Lee movies? Yasin Bay in one of my favorite Spike shot Lee on digital early. Oh, he is. Of course, he is in Bamboozled. Yeah, he's great in Bamboozled. Um, There's got to be more. Man, I'm just saying, no disrespect to 50 Cent (laughs) (laughs) instead of Thieves. Most rappers act at some point or another is all I'm saying, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. uh, Well, sure. Most, Most like... I don't know if that's true. Okay, Actually, a lot of rappers true. acted some. Like Drake acted, but then he became a rapper and he hasn't yes. acted since becoming a rapper, you know. You are you are also I think maybe slightly unaware of how many fucking like no budget hood movies there are that these No, no. I'm not uh, when they're I'm, when they're <laughs> uh, real up and coming. I don't that's think that happens. I don't think that happens. I think I, the state we're in for the last like 15 years is those movies will have people who are rappers, but if those people are maybe more known for that movie than they are their rap yes. career, by the time the movie comes, by the yes. time the movie becomes important, they get better known for that movie than their rap career, or they become an actor off the back of said movie where they're yes. better known for their acting career than they are for the, the rap career career beforehand. Did you see the Griselda movie? I don't think so. I didn't see it because it's like two and a half hours long, but like all the Griselda movie guys made like a no budget hood movie a few years ago that Mark Rapp Mike Rappaport was in. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh no, I yeah. I yeah. I anyway, so. rappers, um yeah. Now what's the best performance by an R and B singer in a movie? That's the real question. And is it the weekend in Uncut Gems? I, there's gotta be there's, there's gotta, gotta be, be others more. but I, I you know what it actually might be i really love this performance like i truly adore this performance and i think this performance maybe should have won the oscar um mariah carey and precious is oh, yeah. an extraordinary performance yeah uh and i don't understand that like no one took to that because it's the t- type of like stunt casting that the oscars love it's it's incredible that that performance is as good as it is, considering Mariah Carey notoriously didn't know that you had to pay for electricity or water or yes. other utilities. And in, also in considering home. like yeah. how bad Monique is in that movie. <laughs> I am sorry to say it. And how like loud and annoying that movie is that like Mariah's giving this fucking like Dardenne Brothers performance. Are there the no other it. are there no other major R&B performances? Oh, no. Whitney, dude. Whitney, they, oh. they all they all act. They all act once or twice. Oh, uh, you know, uh, Rihanna um, um, and Battleship. Um, uh, fuck. What's that? The 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 World War Two veterans returning. Mudbound. Mudbound. Marriage Oblige and Mudbound. Yeah. Uh, first person to ever be nominated for acting and songwriting at the Oscars in the same year. A feast that was then repeated for the next two years, which is one of my favorite <laughs> weird trivia facts. Yeah. <laughs> no, sorry. It was repeated for the next three years because so she's the first person ever nominated in both those categories in the same year, right? Yeah. And then Gaga does it the next year. 
and then Cynthia Revo does it the year after that. And then um Leslie uh Leslie Odom Jr. does it the year after that. So like I, it never happened and then it happened for four straight years. Let me let me hit you with, with an opinion. Yeah. <laughs> let me hit you with a take. Gugu and Bathara gives the best R and B performance in a movie ever, but she's not an R and B singer. Uh you know how much I love that movie. Yeah. That movie is fucking like transcendent. I adore. Mm. I I loved, I know I've said this to you in person many times. Everyone who knows me has heard this from me. I loved the woman king. I thought the woman king was terrific, right? Mm. It is still like very annoying to me that Gina Prince Bythewood is the best in the world and making a specific type of movie. And she seems like completely disinterested in ever doing that <laughs> with her career ever again. Like, I was just thinking the same thing. I get that it's frustrated to be boxed in, um, but you're so good at like old school melodrama weepies, right? You're our John Dahl. Come back to us, Gina. She's she's kind of like some of those films are Cirquean in their they're like non-ironic Cirque. Yeah, like John. I think of John Stahl is the better because John Stahl made Imitation of Life and Magnificent Obsession in the 30s. Like if you've seen those, yeah, yeah, the original versions. Like the John Stahl is the guy that like Cirque is almost like riffing off of. And if you take the circus satirist read, which I don't necessarily like, Um, I kind of do. I think what makes the Cirque film special is that they can be read both ways. Exactly. Yeah, because it except for written in the wind, yeah. yeah, written in the wind, I think is pretty clearly satire, but the rest really do straddle that line. Oh, they're so good. I think there's a case if I'm going to try to bring it back that sure. Neil Jordan also has in his better directorial <laughs> work in his better directorial work Neil Irish filmmaker Neil Jordan also has some some Cirque-esque elements to his uh to his sure. filmmaking style. Maybe, I don't know, man. He's a weird director. Connor, Very what's strange. the movie we're talking about this week? We were talking about Ondine from 2009. We were talking about Ondine. Yeah. The 2009. Because this is a podcast about the state of the 21st century movie star, and we are talking about our I did already best boy, Colin Farrell. I don't think he, he did. did. I think you said, said we were talking about Fran. No, I um, squeezed. I Friday. snuck it in there. I snuck oh, okay. it in there. Uh, Yeah. You know, you know what's a thought I had while watching this movie? Colin Farrell Andy. has on Dean, yes. Colin Farrell has ultimately made very few Irish films. Yes, yes. This is the fourth one we're going to be talking about, I believe, so far. Um, if you count uh, Ordinary Decent Criminal, which I am, Ordinary Decent Intermission, Criminal. and if you count um, okay, no, but you're not one. counting. What was that? What was What's the reporter one that we watched with Veronica Garen? I, yeah. I was not counting Veronica Garen, but we can count Veronica Garen. Like, I mean, made in Ireland. I'm assuming sure. most of the crew was Irish. Sure. Let's take yeah. a big picture take. I said this is the fifth one he's making. But like 
How many does he have in the tank after this? I think it might just be Banshees. Truly, I think um, uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer is considered an Irish film. I wouldn't count Irish. that. I think that's. A, a I think every. I think every qualify qual. Every qualifying list counts it as an Irish film because the crew was Irish. Okay, let's see this. Yeah. Yeah, it is considered an Irish, British, French film. Yeah. Okay. So he's got two more in the pocket. Um I feel like there could be another one, but maybe I'm just wrong. I mean, I might be wrong. We haven't watched all these movies yet. Like I could be wrong. I Yeah, don't... but we're, we're we're starting to hit the point where I am aware of 98% of the projects that we will be talking yeah, about. Like I've, I've yeah. seen most of the movies we are going to talk about. I've not seen all of them, but like, anyway, my point being, um, I think it's interesting that like other, Miss Julie, I, I think Miss Julie is an Irish production as well. Well, that's I think Swedish. It, that was also, but that's like a spiritually Swedish movie. I know, right? but it was, I think that was also shot in Ireland. Sure. Yeah. I think you see a lot of crossing the Atlantic from other European actors who break big in the States to a degree that you don't see with Colin. Oh, like for um, some reason. Well, well, we got to cut this off at like Anglican actors. I'm also talking about like Cotillard, right? Yeah, but I think there's a reason why Cotillard and um, like Javier Bardem returned to their native yeah like countries because it's a they they're speaking a different language sure they're in America but, okay, but, but even yeah. more so with the brits and the other irish stars of the states like you see so much i guess neeson is the other one where neeson never goes back really yeah right? but i don't has i mean peaky blinders is not an irish production sure but killian makes a lot of irish movies I think, doesn't he? How many does he make? I, I, well, he doesn't make a lot of stuff anymore. He had, sure. he's only made like, uh, since since inception, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. God, get that eight. peaky blinders. No, money. actually, actually, there's three different. Uh, yeah, I guess since you're inception, right. yeah. one, two, three, four, five, six. I think he's been in six things since inception. That's you're wrong, but he's been in way more than six things since inception. Oh, I'm looking at yeah. No, yeah, you're wrong. Uh, you're, yeah, that, I, I mean, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Regardless, <laughs> you're right. I'm yeah. wrong about Killian though. He doesn't do a lot of Irish stuff, but like, yeah, maybe it is an Irish thing. I'm thinking like Stephen Ray goes back a lot. Is basically what I'm saying. Cole Meany goes back. Yeah, a but lot. Stephen Ray hasn't re- necessarily left. Broken. Cole Meany hasn't necessarily left. Sure. Um, yeah. Anyway, it's interesting that. Um, Sir Ronan hasn't necessarily. Sir Ronan is American though. That you, is you forget she's from Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, yeah, she didn't just make a movie called Brooklyn. She's an American <laughs> citizen by birth because she was born in Brooklyn. <laughs> um, that's why her accent's so weird. I guess this point, I just think it's a nice. All that was preamble for me to say. I do think it's nice that he worked with Neil Jordan at one point because Neil Jordan is probably the most notable Irish director alive. I think. Um... It's hard to say. Some people consider McDonough an Irish filmmaker. And I don't I think still think either Neil of Jordan yeah. is the most notable Irish director alive. Well, well, I think for I think if people count McDonough, I think today McDonough is 
is and the I most still one. think Neil it, Jordan made the crying game and interview with a vampire and is the most notable. Yeah, Irish but I don't think I. people ca- I don't think people born after 1996 care about either of those movies. Well, then maybe it's faltering apart. I, I, I my the caveat I will throw in there is I think at some level he's not as acclaimed as Neil Jordan, but I think at some level Jim Sheridan I think Jim um, Sheridan is, is the big runner up. Very equal. Yeah. In terms of fame, <laughs> notoriety. What's the last time Jim Sheridan made a movie? What's what's he Jim made? Sheridan he made did? he made the he, he directed the Fifty Cent film. He did direct the Fifty Cent yeah. film. Um, that was kind of the the beginning of the end for him. Weirdly, <laughs> like, yeah. that's right after. All... The, isn't that his follow up to In America? That's his fucking follow up to <laughs> In America, the most beautiful movie ever made. Um, I fucking love In America so much. Anyway, and my point is that. For all that Colin doesn't really work in Ireland, it, it is nice that he worked with Jordan, who is, yeah, you know, you can poo-poo it, but this, like, Titanic filmmaker who, The Crying Game is one of the most important movies of the past 50 years. There's, like, arguably no Miramax without The Crying Game, <laughs> right? Like. <laughs> yeah. Interview with a Vampire, a classic, uh, Byzantium, a great movie, <laughs> like Company of Wolves, incredible, like just, 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 he's just a, he has a fucking golden lion, right? Like, yeah, it's just nice that it worked out for the same reason that if Colin said tomorrow, I'm making a movie with Sheridan, I'd be like, Good. You should make a movie with Jim Sheridan. Do I wish the Colin Farrell, Neil Jordan movie was good? Also, yes, but we can't have it all, can we? No. Um, I mean, he's he's uh, he's he's a filmmaker of varying quality. Yes. And I think that's a way to say it. From from reading interviews with him, I think that there is an aspect to his career that's shared with somebody like a Joel Schumacher, whereas he is making the majority of his films um, through fairly constricting circumstances of in terms of how the budget is being secured and what the shooting window is actually going to be. And I think in some cases, like this film specifically, I don't I can't remember if I read specifically what project had been canceled, but he was going to make a studio picture that yes. got stalled by the, the writer strike of 2007. Very. Uh, yeah, this is a this is a yeah, strike. Very this is applicable a strike to today. Also, um, he well, I've... he returned to Ireland to make this yeah. at a low budget during the, the writer strike. Um, yes. But I think there's issues of the script that are are, are very visible in this film. That, that seemed very clear. Possibly visible. Yeah. I also, um, we, we got to get some housekeeping out of the way. I completely forgot to do this. We got so off track. Um, we said last week that this was going to be the truth. <laughs> 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 I completely forgot. Yeah, we, said, right. we, we said last week that this was going to be the triage episode. Um, obviously, we are not talking about the film triage this week. Now, here's the thing that happened. 
We're very, very bad at doing prep work, and we did not clock until like three days ago that triage is... It was more than three. It was like five days ago. It was on Sunday, my dude. It was not on Sunday. It was on Sunday. No, 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 no. I texted you on... I believe I texted you on Thursday or Friday saying... Saturday at the earliest. No, 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 no. Okay, well, (laughs) proceed. But I I stand by that I texted you either on Thursday or Friday because I ordered the DVD and the DVD arrived to me on Sunday. Okay. Yeah. It was Friday then. We did not realize in time that triage is hard to watch. (laughs) Uh, It is not streaming anywhere and the DVD and Blu-ray are kind of touch and go about in-print availability. So I have a copy. And apparently of... uh, region availability. Yeah, if, uh, region, yeah. yeah. I have a copy of Triage headed to me. Connor got his hands on a copy that he could not watch uh, and is trying to get another copy. Inshallah, <laughs> next week is going to be the Triage episode. But it was either switch the order or skip a week. And we decided to just go ahead with Andine. Now, here's the thing. We we do this in chronological order, but chronological order is kind of a nebulous concept and is actually going to get more nebulous as we get into the more art housey era of Colin's career. The order I put the movies in is by premiere date. When it comes to triage and Andine, tri- Andine premiered two days later than triage at the same Toronto International Film Festival, right? Yeah. Like triage premiered on September 12th. This movie premiered on September 14th. Both of them do not get released into to, until 2010. Uh, in which case triage does in fact come out after Andine. So we aren't really shaking it up. There's another version of us structuring this where the order of episodes went. Crazy Heart, Parnassus, Ondine, Triage, right? And I think that would have still been justifiable. Based on you, wait, commercial, wait, wait. This commercial, based on release, commercial release. Commercial release. If date, we're yeah. going by the Wikipedia filmography, it goes in Bruges, Ondine, Triage, Crazy Heart, Imaginarium. Yeah. I don't know why that I is. I have no idea. I have no idea what that, like, I don't know what the Wikipedia order is based on. Yeah. And Pride and Glory needs yeah. to be in there too somewhere. Well, Pride and Glory is before in Bruges. Which is incorrect. Did we do Pride and Glory, Pride and Glory after Inverse? Yes, because okay. it came out after okay. Inverse. Neither of those movies played festivals. I don't know what Wikipedia is talking about. Um, no, but my, my point being is that Andine and Triage like functionally are coming out at the same time. Like Triage comes out a month later, premieres two days earlier. Uh, don't get your panties in a bunch Both over this. Both films that and nobody saw. Yeah, I so sincerely really hope. Matter that we have the triage DVDs ready to go for next week. Uh, Cause otherwise I actually don't know what we're going to do. I guess um, we'll do uh crazy heart. I guess, like I said, chronological release date when you get to these fucking festival movies is a nebulous concept. Uh, and that's all I have to say on the matter. This is the on Dean episode. Connor, would you like to tell the lovely listeners what the 2009 Neil Jordan film on Dean is about? Yes, uh, let's go for it. Colin Farrell plays a um, a blue collar fisherman named Syracuse, also referred to as Circus the Clown 
by people uh, within his small community. I can't remember slash uh, didn't clock which specific rural uh, fishing community within Ireland that this is. I'm sure Cole um, and I can maybe come up with an answer for you within the next uh, 10 or so minutes. Um, but yeah, Colin Farrell is a fisherman. And at the very beginning of this movie, he uh, pulls Castle up his Town net. Beer. Yep. He pulls up his net to find a seemingly um, Mediterranean slash Slavic European woman uh, caught in the net. She at first appears to have been drowned, but she uh, coughs up the water and is is brought back to life. Um, Syracuse brings her back to his mother's uh <laughs> What, lakeside estate or, or oceanside uh hut that he lets this mysterious woman who refers to herself as Andine live um she is very worried about the authorities seeing her or anybody in general seeing her and she and Syracuse begin a friendship um she sings while he's fishing and it seems to bring plentiful bounty to his ship uh, in an almost supernatural way um, Syracuse has a daughter named Annie who is suffering from liver failure and she has been uh, situated in a wheelchair to um, retain her energy uh, and she begins to believe that Andine is actually a selkie of Irish folklore a uh, Cole what is that that animated film that came out about the Song of the Sea yeah for those who haven't seen Song of the Sea or the uh, the secret, secret of Rowan Inish great um, so I gotta cut you off here. Yeah, great movie. Holy <laughs> shit! John Sayles is the secret of Ronan. <laughs> yes, um, fantastic film. But for those of you who haven't seen it, a selkie is is a bit like an Irish slash Scottish mermaid. Um, but in this in this version of folklore, it is just a seal who sheds its seal coat and comes to land in the shape of a human and is able to live and mate with a real human for seven years before they have to return to the sea. So Syracuse's daughter, Annie begins to believe that Andine is a Selkie. Um, Syracuse's ex-wife and her current Scottish boyfriend uh, are both heavy drinkers. I would presume by this point in the film and Syracuse used to be um a bit of a rascal and heavy drinker himself. Uh, he has been sober for, I believe, two years uh, by the, at the time the film is taking place. Um, and he claims that he used to be referred to as Circus the Clown because of his antics while he was drinking. Um, but putting his daughter in peril while being under the influence has caused him to, to live a sober life. Yet he's pretty lonely and secluded and really only fishes and then cares for his daughter when given the opportunity because his wife has custody of the kid. Um, he confides in his priest uh, played by Stephen Ray uh, because there seems to be no AA in this small rural Irish town. Um, I don't know where to go from here, Cole. Should I go into the the, the twist? Uh. Yeah, like eventually he starts yeah. more publicly dating Andine. Andine feels more uh, comfortable showing her face out in the town, but there's a mysterious figure who looks a lot like Rainer Werner Fassbinder <laughs> who uh, clocks her um, pretty often and in an ominous way. Uh, it becomes revealed. Oh, no. That mysterious figure, by happenstance, crashes into 
uh, the van that is being driven by circus by Syracuse's ex-wife and her boyfriend with Annie in the backseat. The boyfriend dies, but he's a tissue mesh for Annie and, and she gets um, his donor liver to, to cure her of whatever ailment. Is it? Is it? It's, kidney she has, she is it has kidney failure. Okay. Yeah. In the reviews I read, it said liver failure. She's on dialysis. Um, like it's well, I never, I never looked it up. I was like, I always assume dialysis with kidneys, but I'm like, no, can you go on dialysis for the liver? You can only do it for the kidneys. Okay. So, um, she receives a donor kidney from from Syracuse's ex-wife's Scottish boyfriend, which I can't remember his character's name. I'm sure it's it's fairly simple. Uh, that leads into. It being revealed that Andine is actually just a victim of Romanian human trafficking and she was being used by this mysterious figure to smuggle drugs into Ireland. Um, yet they were caught by <laughs> the Sea Patrol uh, or Ocean Patrol and uh, she fled the, the ship to swim away. She somehow got far enough away that by the time she ended up in um Syracuse's net he is nowhere near uh, any of this police activity that's taking place um but the mysterious figure was her pimp slash drug boss she refers to him as her master right mm -hmm. I think yeah and um we head towards a violent climax where he's um taking them hostage to try to figure out where the the drugs have ended up uh, turns out he can't swim and they push him off a boat and he drowns and dies. And then Andine goes to jail and then <laughs> Syracuse marries her and it's so happily she can, ever after. So she can get a residency, so she can, basically. So she can, yeah, so she can yeah. live in Ireland. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you forgot the most important plot point in this movie, which made me scream when it was revealed. What am I, what am I forgetting? So she like is constantly singing this like mystical strange oh, song yeah. throughout the movie, which occasionally keys in some of the more supernatural elements, which are left completely unexplained. Right. <laughs> it's just like, Oh, weird that all these weird coincidences happened. But yeah. like, obviously we have this understanding with like, you know, on Dean's mythologically are like the roots. We were talking about this, the roots of a lot of mermaid and myths. But, you know, we think of mermaids. We think of sirens. We think of them having we think of like women in the sea. Right. Sing. I dude. I that we talked about Aquaman. Yeah, that's true. But they but they <laughs> sing and she sings this like beguiling, fantastical song with like in a strange language that no one knows. And then the thing that leads Syracuse to clock that she's human and not uh and not actually like a myth mythological creature is that his daughter is watching fucking Sigur Ross on TV and it's a Sigur Ross song. Do you know Sigur yeah. Ross? Minimally, yeah. Okay, but I, this I'm, is I'm the, aware. This is the joke that like credit to this movie it Never buttons. It lets you get this. Sigaros <laughs> are a great Icelandic band who sing in a made-up language called Hopelandic. So that's why all her songs seem like mystical and strange is because she's just singing Icelandic gibberish. And But the movie, like, trusts you to clock that. I don't know. It's, I loved it. I thought that was hilarious. It is a great joke. It's it would be one thing if it was just a joke, 
But instead, it's like a very important part of the plot. Well, yes, that it kicks off like the entire third act of the movie. That realization. You said it early on that like this movie has script problems by virtue of being a like let's run back to Europe and shoot something outside of the WGA's purview. And but what I'm also assuming is that this this script had probably just been sitting there. Yeah. And um, and it's it's one of the deals of like, let's run back to Europe where we don't have to make um a uh, we don't have to apply for. Yeah. For the ability to make this film under what yeah. the WGA was doing at the time, but also in the sense of like, well, we're not going to use this opportunity to work on the script because we don't want to offend any of yes. any of the American talent that that. Well, that who wrote issue it with that? Um, but here's let's see who wrote this movie. Neil Jordan wrote this yeah. movie, so maybe he just went and banged something out. Well, I know. Um, I think uh, my assumption is that he probably just like had it sitting there. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, but the problem with this movie is that this movie is two hours long. And what I mean when I say the problem with this movie is this movie is two hours long is that the whole thing is this like, what's going on? Is she a like magical creature or is she just a human with a secret? And it's so obvious, but like by the time the kid is like, oh no, she's a selkie. Here's all this information on selkies. Let me tell you why she's a selkie. 25 minutes into the movie, there's nowhere for it to go but for her to actually be human, right? Yeah. Like the, once, once that is slapped on the table and the movie still is like, but what's going on? You're well, like, I know what's going on. There's a twist you're going to drop on me. And I'm just sitting here waiting for you to say she's a human because you're not living in the truth that she's not. I think there's a world where this film could, could like she could have actually been the Selkie, but sure. Neil Jordan is committed to making like neo-noir-esque crime dramas. And his, no. that can't exist. That can't coincide with with his need to do that, um, which yeah. is how you end up with with what we get. Uh, my quick Connors writers workshop fix yeah. is this film is for the it the majority of this film is told from Syracuse's perspective. I think if you just tell it from Annie's perspective, it's uh, yeah. it's immediately. I would movie. I would actually dispute that it's primarily told from Syracuse's perspective. I think it is like two thirds, one third Syracuse to Annie. Yeah, it's the majority yeah. of it yeah. is told from and, Syracuse's yeah. perspective. But I think if you just tell the entire yeah. thing from Annie. Maybe, maybe retain the the opening when Syracuse finds her. Like you don't need Annie there in that scene, but the rest of the film can be told from Annie's I mean, perspective. Yeah. Cole's um, Cole's quick writer's workshop on this is just dump the mystery angle. Like you can even keep the whole um ultimate twist that she's just this like drug mule in the movie if you want to if like from very early on everyone's just like okay she's a selkie and then the movie's just a love story right like i don't say you should keep the twist but you can keep the twist that you keep like shooting it and scripting it and playing it like a neo-noir mystery like fucking i'm sorry to say it but like that you are calling back to the crying game and this sense that like 
there's something unrevealed about Dill. There's a secret Dill is keeping. That she is so visibly keeping a secret means that we know the secret can't be that she's a Selkie. And there's only yeah. one other thing it can be, which is that she's not a Selkie. And that's not an interesting movie to watch. I love it, the kid. The kid's great. Be, it could be an interesting movie. The, the 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 other thing that screams that like this is a uh this is like a writer strike period. Um let's make something at like a low manageable budget just to get something made uh, at the collapse of another project is Neil Jordan had said in an interview. Uh, I want to see if I can find the exact quote. I might not yeah. be able to, but he had essentially said that he had this idea of a woman washing up in a fishing net. And that was kind of like where the entirety of this story comes from. But I think that's great. If that's the impetus to him, wanting to make a film about a woman who might or might not be a Selkie and her kind of infiltration of a rural Irish community that's undergoing this, this change into the 21st century. Um, I think the problem is, I think the problem is once he builds the rest of what this story is supposed to be, then you have to do so much to you have to do so much explaining as to why she ended up in the net in the first place and why she's not just like floating out in the ocean and yeah. comes across her. Like you, you have to do so much explaining to just explain the iconography of like a drowned woman being pulled up in a net and then being brought back to life that you start convoluting yourself in in needless ways that just elongate the film past like what it's supposed to be. You also have to uh Give me an explanation for how she magically summons a whole fleet of salmon yeah, uh, to his boat. The movie just wants you to forget that that happened. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. make sense. After Syracuse finds Andine, um, who's what's her real name? Sonia or something? Joanna. Joanna. Yeah. Um, after Syracuse finds Andine, he takes her out while he's fishing and she sings this ethereal Icelandic, but not a Icelandic song, just like out to the water, which is also not a thing you're doing if you're trying not to be seen by yeah. passerbys out there. But regardless, she starts singing the song and then miraculously Syracuse starts catching lobsters that he hadn't caught before. And at one point he, he catches an entire, just in his net, in his fishing net, catches an entire school of salmon. Which like, like- which I is so know. out of the ordinary that the I, fishing commission yeah. like inspects his ship to make sure he's not doing anything illegal. I know jack shit about trawling, right? Yeah. Basically, all I know about trawling is what is shown in the films in the bedroom and coda, uh, two <laughs> equal masterpieces. Um but so I am going to take the movie at its word here. And the movie's word is that multiple characters say catching salmon with the equipment that he's using is literally impossible. Yeah. To which I say, how he catch the fucking salmon, Neil Jordan. Explain to me the salmon. I need if an you, answer. If you have enough s- characters who are presented as being qualified. Yes questioning this as an impossibility like a miracle of 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 fishing happenstance then then the film is is prompted to explain how that happens at some point and its initial explanation is that Andine is a selkie so she's luring the salmon in but then when it's revealed that she's not a selkie the the film leaves you wondering how then 
You have to give us a when, secondary when explanation as when to how it's this revealed that the that the film is that she's not as sulky. The film is like, well, that happened an hour ago, and the intervening hour is so boring. Everyone's asleep by now, so we're good. Yeah, I did not like the 2009 Neil Jordan film on Dean. I'm just gonna put that out there. I found this movie very dull. Did you at least appreciate what Colin is doing in this movie? You okay? Yeah, you have been saying for weeks now because you've you'd seen this movie before. I had, yeah, yeah. You've been saying for weeks now on Dean's kind of whatever, but it's a really interesting Colin performance. And you disagree. And I need you to explain to me what you're talking about. Well, we (laughs) keep talking about that. I disagree. It's that I don't understand how you have that opinion. We keep talking about um, his, despite how open he is with the media about his personal life, he seems hesitant and not as willing to talk about the the issues that led him to rehab, um, the struggles of of raising his his firstborn child who has a developmental disability. Um, sure. So this is like a film where he's playing a, a an, an alcoholic who has a disabled child. Sure. Yeah. But do you think there's be- beyond that, it has those parallels? Do you think there's anything interesting to those parallels? Because I, I, I don't necessarily think he's bad at this movie. I just think he's kind of whatever. I mean, this is me going back to my own bit. Like he's, he feels a little lost in this movie. He's just kind of withdrawn and turning off the charisma and I disagree I, his lines. I don't think he's I don't think he's lost I think what I'm talking about with the perspective issue of it not being told from Annie's perspective yeah. it prompts you with a couple of things the first I I find his the, his per, his performance alongside the uh child actor who's playing Annie um Allison Berry is her name. Best I find that to be very touching. Sure. Um, the way he's like carrying her and the way he's he's caring he's he's caring for her during those scenes, I find very touching. Um, he seems to have he seems to have a, a, like a sentimental awareness w- within his brow that he will become known for throughout the preceding films that he's about to make, but he hasn't necessarily shown to me by this point in his career. Um but that said, because of the perspective issues of the film, and because at one point Syracuse becomes so convinced that Andine is in fact a Selkie, so convinced in fact that he like abandons her uh just like on a, a barren island that houses a, a lighthouse that nobody else yeah. seems to to live on. Um y- you kind of just question how stupid this man is in actuality that he could fall for such that he could fall for such a simple um a simple enrapturement of of wanting uh, i don't know i've just because it's not even that he wants her to be a selkie he just he comes to believe that this is actually real like that's that i guess is my crux of it is like what's his relation to this central question because clearly his daughter wants her to be a Saki, right? Like she puts this idea in yeah. everyone's heads because she I think loves subtly, the magic of it. Subtly, Annie has this idea as well that like, if you come from magic, then there's got to be some fix to me. To me, there's something wrong with me. 
and there's got to be a way for you to help me fix this um and that you coming along is not a coincidence that like that is the reason why you were here what's syracuse's relationship to that it just seems like he shuffles his feet and says okay i mean it's it, we're we're starting from the idea that like there's no character here on the page, and I can see in terms of Andine, in terms of Syracuse. I don't, I don't, I don't think we're starting from there being no character on I the page. Don't though. think there's anything going on there. I think what I see in in aspects of Colin's performance here, specifically in the scenes with Stephen Ray, is he's playing somebody who used to be a social featurement within this community who has retreated from it uh like uh, due to either embarrassment about the way that he used to act or um changing motives and changing objectives of of what he feels like his duty in life is and and I, i'm not necessarily sure i would say that he's somebody with goals but i think he clearly is depicted to be a man who made it to made a conscious decision at one point to place his daughter above anything else and has really changed the way he leads his life for better and for worse. Um, and I'm not saying that you should read that as some kind of biographical implement of how Colin has, has felt about the struggles that he had in his own life. But I do think that there is subtextually like, something very deep there and something very layered that he's doing um, that possibly, possibly is a product of his own experiences. Uh, And it's, but the, like, but what I'm saying is none of those scenes have anything to do with Andine. And like, this question is, is is she a Selkie or not a Selkie? Like all, all the aspects of Colin's performance that I like in this film are aspects that he has with Steve or like scenes that he has with Stephen Ray as a priest talking about his, his love for his daughter and his alcoholism and his his place within society and the scenes that he shares with his daughter and then everything else is just kind of i, I don't want to say nonsense but it's kind of just m- messy content that doesn't know what to do with itself on top of that yeah i don't i i do like those scenes like in absentia in a way in a vacuum uh, with Stephen Ray because they're funny. They're often very like that. Their back and forth is clever, yeah. but my my problem is that like any relationship to alcoholism in those scenes disappears in the broader picture, and especially in his relationship to his wife and her new boyfriend. That like just seems so neutral, right? Do do you almost get what I'm saying? That like. I don't I don't buy what the function of the alcoholism is supposed to like represent vis-a-vis how this like divorce has played out. Like obviously I understand literally that it's meant to be the cause of the divorce, but in terms of the relationship he has with her and she has with him and they both have with their daughter, any any interesting lingering like guilt almost that's in the Stephen Ray scenes is gone in the interactions with his broader family around him. And when I say like, there's no character there, that's what I'm saying is that 
there's no through line on the page. And I don't think Colin has anything to play and he doesn't feel sometimes he'll exceed the material. Sometimes he won't. Right. And I think this is a classic case of him getting a bad script and kind of just turning it up, turning it off. Well, I think we're kind of in agreement there that like within those scenes, there's, yeah. there's something of, of substance to latch onto, but like in the greater picture, cause, cause that's kind of like the deal of this movie is that Neil Jordan kind of establishes circumstances that have to be there for the plot machinations of the film. Exactly. In, in ultimatum, not even work because they don't work when you start thinking about them at, 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 at any kind of me, elevated level. It drives me so crazy that it is not a drunk driving incident that kills Alan, the boyfriend. It's, it's not a drunk driving incident because the, the other the ex- because the Romanian guy has to end up at the hospital to yes, see because the movie the spends yeah. like several minutes like establishing that they're at the bar, establishing that they're getting hammered, both of them having repeated conversations about their ability to whether or not they're good to drive and then it just keeps building it and building it up and then when they do get in the car this other dude just drives into them and neither of them are at fault at all right and the reason that the other guy drives into them is simply just because he's driving kind of fast throughout the town exactly like he's just he's not even he it's it's questionable as to like how the accident even occurs because he seems to be aware. He just seems to be driving like a little bit over the speed limit if there is one. Yeah. I think I even think, more so. I, I yeah. can't understand. So th- they show this flashback at the end of the film when they're explaining like that um, Joanna is actually like a drug mule and that there's this flashback scene where she's like in a rowboat with the guy and the the coast guard helicopters are pulling up to arrest them and she dives into the water and swims away but then they never explain like how that guy got out of no like how did that guy not get arrested (laughs) when he's surrounded by helicopters and coast guard boats yeah to go back to, to just this 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 car accident though like i get that what Jordan wants is for there to be like something serendipitous about the like this this like sort of intruder into the family unit, right? Like the mom's new boyfriend ends up providing for the daughter in a way that Colin never can through dying, right? Yeah. Like I get that there's something kind of like almost it's a wonderful life ask about the weird tragedy of that. It is more interesting I, I am not saying that like everything needs to have a button on it but it is more interesting if his alcoholism is the thing that directly leads to that right if he gets hammered and he's driving the car and that leads to him dying and having the, the kidney for her that is so much more interesting than what actually happens and kind of magical right than than what actually happens. And the fact that this movie is so close to that, but can't cross the finish line is to me like indicative of everything about this movie, which is that it all feels half written 
and nothing ever seems to click together the way it it would if it was more fully conceptualized. And I think that leads to the crux of who Syracuse is as a person, which is I don't fucking know who Syracuse is as a person at the end of this movie. He he's an enigma. He's an enigma when it starts, he's an enigma when it ends. I don't think he's an enigma. I think he is. Because I think he's just dumb. And Maybe because of that, that's he's it. fairly simple. And sure, that's, but that's what it is. is that interesting? Yeah. <laughs> but is that interesting, Connor? No, it's not. No. And I, I don't, don't disagree. Think... I don't disagree with anything that you're saying. You know, and you know who's an interesting dumb guy played by Colin Farrell? Uh who has a um... who has a much more interesting relationship to alcoholism and to Colin Farrell's own history with alcoholism. Oh, I don't know this. what you're about to say. Uh Ray in fucking fucking in Bruges. But is Ray in like is Ray an alcoholic? No, but is Ray someone who seems to live his life for like whatever the next cheap thrill is and like slowly over the course of the movie realizes how psychologically empty that is? I I yes. I that's that's a difficult that's a difficult summation summation to take away from Ray considering I, I think... like that a lot of that movie is like in Bruges being a, a purgatory-esque space. Yeah, that he almost like in. he needs yeah. to make his way through his sins, one of which being hedonism before he can come out the other side. Yeah, but I think he I think his hedonism is like is as shown in the film is also a product of him being stuck in Bruges. Sure. Well, yeah. that's the purgatorial aspect of it. Um, I'm just saying, I think if we're going to like make the oblique reads for like the interesting movies that are Colin responding to his own personal troubles, this movie may have like the more literal touchstones, but I think he's done more interesting oblique references to it. He also plays stupid better and ask the dust. I'm just going to say that. Well, I, I think he's, I, I don't know what it is about him in this that I am responding to in such a way, but I, I, I think there's, there is this feeling about Syracuse as not a man who's given up, but a man who's kind of accepted the status quo of how things are and is not necessarily like his relationship to his ex-wife and her new boyfriend is not one of pure antagonism as it would be portrayed in another film. And yes. while that film may, may or may not be more interesting, I do think there's like interesting material here of, of him just accepting things as they are and, and trying to make the best of it for his daughter who needs him. Um, but and maybe, he maybe that, maybe the that is the movie starts. I think he has. When but then starts. what's interesting about that? I think that's I think that's the the mystical aspect of it. It's like he's 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 to him his individual life has for all intents and purposes ended and sure. he's not looking for anything else. And then this thing that's magical and beautiful and seductive comes to him just like out of the ether. And he's trying to reconcile that against this hermetic lifestyle that he has created. And he's trying to, he, he, you understand what I'm saying? Like he, he's, sure. he's, he's attempting to, if we're, if we're, if we're considering his Collins on screen relationship to hedonism, which comes up quite a lot in a lot of the films that yeah. he's made. And then 
you have somebody like Syracuse who has made a very conscious decision away from hedonism, but you have, like I'm saying, this magical ethereal figure who could be a doorway to all the euphoric feelings of adult life. It's, it's, it is interesting to me that like his, his insistence to take it like one step at a time per se in filmic in cinematic terms, maybe not realistic terms, but at least in cinematic Um, terms, a brief sidebar, uh, Tony Curran, who plays, uh, Alex, the new boyfriend who gives the, uh, Alex, the, the, the daughter, the kidney at the end, the Scottish boyfriend. Uh, can you tell me without Googling it, where else have we seen him in this project? This is oh, his boy. second. This is his second collaboration. This is his second collaboration with Colin Farrell. Is uh, is he? It's it's gonna be it, like it's. Oh, boy, is it not um, something that you would expect based on his character in this movie? Yes. Okay. It is not. So it's not like ordinary decent criminal no. or Franco nope. Garen or anything like nope. that. Nope. Um. Is it a smaller film? Nope. Damn. Can we just tell you? If he's in Miami Vice, he's, gonna blow he's the neo-Nazi who puts the bomb on Naomi Harris in Miami Vice in the in the trailer park. I think he's the one who answers the door when the pizza comes in. <laughs> yeah, he's one of the neo-Nazis. They he's the one that the... Jamie Fox like stomps on his. I deck think so. As he's yeah, the trailer. Wow. Yeah, but he's definitely the guy who like is running the microwave and like puts the bomb around her neck. That is wild. Yeah. Yeah. What a career by that man. What a career. Um, Here's the other big problem I have with this movie, right? Like a real big problem with this movie. A fucking like apocalyptic. This movie was never going to be good because of this problem with this movie. I have a feeling like I know what you're about to say. Alicia Bacleda, yeah, who yeah, plays yeah. on D. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's necessarily a terrible performance. I don't think it's a pretty good performance, but has non-existent chemistry with Colin Farrell in this ostensible love story. Which is so weird. Which is insane yeah. because the one thing, if people know about this movie, they know about it for one reason. Which is that Colin Farrell impregnates Alicia Bacleda on the set of this movie. <laughs> she is the mother of his second son. I and think I think the I think his son was born before the movie released. I think it's born after the movie premieres, but he's born sorry. But before it released. Before yeah, I it think had he, its, I its think, actual let me, let me, let me get this up. Second son. Uh Yes, his son is born in October 2009. So a few weeks after um TIFF. after the TIFF premiere and uh and then like 9 months before um it before the movie actually comes out. Uh sidebar, um you know who the only other notable person he dates post sobriety is besides Alicia Bacleda? Mm, no. Uh, he briefly dates Emma Forrest, who I have mentioned on this podcast before, because she then goes on to get married and divorced from Ben Mendelsohn and goes on to oh. write and direct the movie about how every woman wants to fuck Ben Mendelsohn. <laughs> yes, yes. Notably, did not make that movie about Colin Farrell. 
Man, what if we did a what if we did Ben Mendelssohn? What if we did a season of Ben Mendelssohn? Connor, Connor, he's Australian. Do you know (laughs) how how much fucking like soap operas he's done? Yeah, but you You know what? I didn't even need to. Did he do it? Did he do it after two thousand? Did he do it? Like, did he do the soap opera stuff? It's yeah, it's all it's all in the nineties. I didn't even need to look this up. Uh, I did, but I didn't need to. He was, in fact, on Neighbors because every fucking Australian actor was on Neighbors. <laughs> do you know about Neighbors? I do, yeah, but yeah, give us the uh, who us I the got. Story. I got to pull up a list of people who were on Neighbors because truly, it's like every Australian actor did a stint on this crazy long-running uh, Australian soap opera. Um, Nicole was on Guy Pierce was on Neighbors, uh, for a bit. Uh, Guy Pierce is on Neighbors again. Holy shit, <laughs> Guy Pierce has returned to Neighbors. That's insane. Uh, Misha Barton is currently on Neighbors, uh, not even Australian. Misha, yeah, I was gonna say, I was like, wait, <laughs> she's not what? Uh, Natalie, Imbruglia. are you sure it's not a different Misha? No, nope, it's Misha Barton. Uh, other people who are on. It. Uh, Natalie Imbruglia, famously of singing the song Torn, was on Neighbors. Um, God, this list is just insane, and they're all like character actors. Uh, Marco Robbie was on Neighbors, and that's how we know that Marco Robbie is lying about her age. Wasn't so how, he... so how old is Marco Robbie? Marco Robbie's like 38. She says she's 33. 38? Yeah, she's 38. Come on. Well, let's, let's be adults here. Let's be adults here. She doesn't look 38 to me. You're telling me that she's fucking um uh How old does 23 in the Wolf of Wall Street? No way. Um <laughs> I mean she looks young anyway. Uh, I love Big Pimp and Ben Mendelssohn. Um was Nicole, Nicole okay, we get Nicole to talk not- we get to talk about the place beyond the pines and Exodus Gods and Kings. If we do Ben Mendelsohn. We're not short on excuses to talk about the place beyond the pines is my thing. We'll never talk about it unless we do Mendelssohn. <laughs> we... There are no movie stars in that movie. Ben Mendelsohn. I mean, we'd have to watch Secret Invasion is the thing you're forgetting. Oh, shit. <laughs> um, yeah, I am forgetting that. Damn. You just want to do another New World episode. I just want to do another New World episode, man. Here's what it is, though. It is The Dark Knight Rises. It is The Place Beyond the Pines. It is fucking Lost River, the greatest movie ever made. And it is Mississippi Grind. Grind, Rogue One. He's so good in Darkest Hour. I don't want to talk about Ready Player One. Um, <laughs> God, he's also in Robin Hood. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, he is. Multiple Marvel wasn't movies. There a, wasn't there another... Am I crazy? Wasn't there another Robin Hood movie that came out at the same time? That way, no. There was a King Arthur movie. There was There's a King a, Arthur. No, movie the King Arthur movie was like several years earlier. Um, he's really good in Cyrano. I don't know. You've kind of talked me into this. Um, have you seen the King? The Chalamet. The which King? one's the King? No, I did not see the King. I saw it's. What was the? What was the? Um, the crazy Chris looking Pine movie from like a year oh. earlier. Uh, like the Outlaw King or something like that. I think it's the Chris Pine one. 
Mm. I think it's called the Outlaw King. It is Outlaw King, yeah. Yeah. Um, he's working with Bowden and Fleck again, continuing that really? like nice little collaboration after they did Mississippi Grind and Captain Marvel together. Um, did you ever see Baby Teeth? I don't. I don't think so. Um, Baby Teeth was. Do you know who was? Oh, yeah. I have seen this. I have Eliza Scanlon, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's really, I mean, I know I've made my case that, like, stop casting Ben Mendelsohn as, like, creeps. Start casting Ben Mendelsohn as, like, nice nice older men things. Uh, but because he, he, he baby teeth, like, the joke of baby teeth is that he's playing the father of a girl who's dating a Ben Mendelsohn character, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, he's really good in that movie. All right, we're doing Ben Mendelsohn season two. Let's fucking do it. <laughs> um, what if we only did? What if we only did foreign character actors? And just sure. every week said this is a podcast about the state of the twenty first century, <laughs> century movie American star. movie star. <laughs> yeah. We're talking about Ben Mendelsohn. That's right, baby. It's the Slow West episode. I love <laughs> Slow West so much. Um. Anyway, the point I was making before we got on this tangent was that. I know Colin Farrell and, and Alicia Baclera have to have real chemistry. They had a child while filming this movie, right? Like they were yeah. actually dating. Where the fuck is it on screen? Here's my question. Is is she predominantly an actor or is she an artist in some other field? She is predominantly I, I... an actress. Okay. Because I'm not super familiar with her i don't she believe i've seen her and this is like films. the only prominent thing she's ever done outside of poland and she uh, works a lot in poland well i'm looking at i'm looking at her filmography it's not so much she works but okay not, she hasn't worked in like 10 yeah. years but for, for, there's like 20 years where she's 15 years where she's like doing a movie or two a year I'm sorry for being uh, speechless, but I just, there's no. just not much. There's just that none of I these are things I've say. seen because I don't watch Polish there, movies. There's there's not um, much that I have oh. to say about about yeah. if I can read into what she's attempting to do with her performance. Yeah. You know what? You know what else she's in? Have you played something? The new? Have you played the new Wolfenstein games? Oh, like the I, reboots. I'm aware, but I haven't played them. She. Those games actually like. I know I rag, I I am I am notorious for saying cutscenes are bad, and I don't like cutscenes in video games. And that's not actually me saying that like cutscenes are artistically like poorly executed. It's me saying that like, animated films should not be a part of playing a video game. Um, the while I still do hold that philosophical point. Um, the cutscenes in the Wolfenstein games are very well executed and very well written and acted and animated. And if they had just made animated movies about like super soldiers fighting Nazis in the sixties, like I think people would like those movies because they're really well done. Um, she does play the least interesting character in those games. She does kind of play the generic, like damsel in distress in those games. Well, is she, is it the classic? I don't want to be mean. Because again, I haven't seen her her native work in yeah. Poland, but is it her featurement in in those video games? Is it the we're taking somebody with a somewhat legitimate acting career 
who's very pretty to look at, who will scan well into I the game. I think and so. She's them also the game playing a Polish character in those games. Okay. Like not a Polish American. She's playing a Polish woman. So yes, are you saying is it Ivan Straczynski or whatever in Mass that's Effect? That's almost I, yes, exactly I, what I'm saying. I, yeah. I, I do think that's what it is. Anya is the least interesting character in those games. Um, I Yes, that is what I do think she is. She's fine in those. Again, I don't think she's terrible in this movie. I'm actually starting to get the sense that she's, I like her more in this than you do. Because, you know, I've said, I think the daughter gives the best performance in this movie. And I, I don't think, the... think I don't think she's giving a bad performance. No. I, I just I can't really I can't see anything beyond the surface level of what she's doing in any given scene. Uh greed. But I do really buy the sort of like surrogate mother bonding she has with Anna. I think a lot of that stuff is really strong. I buy that too. But when we're talking about her chemistry with Syracuse. The the problem is for so much of the film, I think part of the tension or what should be the tension between this question is, is, is she a Selkie or is she not a real Selkie when it's revealed that she's really just a drug mule there, there's this under, there should be this underlying current of it. Does she actually like Syracuse, the man Syracuse, or is yes. she just using him as refuge away from this, this problematic thing that she seems to be escaping? Yes. And when it makes the jump to her truly having a connection with Syracuse, it doesn't seem organic or built out of anything that they've shared together on screen. And it it goes beyond that to the extent that like, you don't watch them fall in love while you're seeing them throughout the film. So like when they get to the point where they make love for the first time, it it's even, even in, even within that scene, it seems like she could be, in a better Neil Jordan neo noir esque movie, it it there would be a higher tension of is she using him for some nefarious reason yes. that we don't understand yet. But that's just not there at all. I will, I will also say to her credit, she never really plays this woman like she might be magical, right? And like to to her credit, yeah. I was thinking real, about that. This real people don't walk around being like, yeah. "Am I a real human or am I a magical creature?" Right. Well, Be- so like, that's what I'm saying. That's like, what I'm saying when the question is, yeah. "How dumb is Syracuse?" Exactly. Actually? Because because she she seems uncomfortable with the questions that Annie starts yes. giving her about like her her seal coat and like these magic rules these these mythological rules about like how the selkies are interact in the real world or maneuver through the real world she never once she never (laughs) she never once seems to be concerned that colin farrell actually thinks that she is a mythical aquatic being and so when you get to the point where syracuse is willing to like abandon her on this island because he thinks that she is actually a selkie uh, to be fair he's drunk in the scene but this is still a thing that he's actually doing and like that that he that he's following through with she there, she never once she never once seems to be trying to trick Colin well, Farrell no. thinking that she is this there were moments where I think she is like playing up like like 
that she as a character is like, oh, this weird story that's been grafted onto me is like a lifeline I've been handed. So yeah. I'll maybe like play into it a little bit. But that's something that Bakleda is doing for the other characters on screen. It's not something that she's doing for the audience. Her relationship to the audience is that she's always playing this character like a real human being, which is an interesting choice to make because it defangs everything else the movie is doing. And it works if I buy the love story, but I don't buy the love story. And I do have to put a lot of that onto Colin because he's, at the end of the day, he's the actor I'm more familiar with. He's the guy I've seen, you know. You know, I don't buy the love story in the new world either. We got into a huge argument about that. I don't buy it as a script, but I buy it emotionally because they're both selling the shit out of it, right? They're not selling the shit out of it here, even though they're fucking offset. It <laughs> drives me crazy. Why is this not the hottest movie ever made? And I have to put it yeah. on Colin. I have to put it on Colin because I think more is being asked if he's being asked to carry his half of it, and he's not. I I don't I don't buy that portion of this film either. But that's um, the movie. It's not a portion of the movie. It's everything. I might knock the star off this on Letterboxd. I'm talking myself into liking it less and less. That's fair. I mean, I I I didn't love it the first time I saw it. I, I didn't. I wouldn't even necessarily say that I thought it was good the first time I saw it. I think I probably think less of it this time. But I still just appreciate like just seeing the scenes that Syracuse has with Annie and and seeing the scenes that Syracuse has with his priest and 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 trying to glean something from that about all the daughter stuff. Colin is, is trying to say about the actuality of of living in this messed up world that we share. Um, but yeah. the as you said, the problem is that this is a two-hour movie, and those scenes make up like twenty-five minutes of this two-hour movie. It's so just repetitive, and every scene is like twenty percent too long, right? Like it's just a fucking vamping movie. Um, can we talk about this movie? Like, kind of killed Neil Jordan's career. Was it this movie? I'm not looking I, I at don't, his filmography right now. I um, don't have any like direct evidence for that. I but think if he you, was always kind of like it's he was never necessarily uh, the crying game. You are correct in saying that it's one of the more important films of the last 50 years. I, I don't think people today, people younger than us, are as aware of it. Um, possibly be because. In a strange sense, it's not as applicable to the now. I mean, not even in part of its readings on gender and sexuality, but just like the fact that it's an IRA drama, terrorism drama is not applicable to the now like it was in the time of its making. Um, But beyond that, he's not, I mean, Interview with the Vampire is a big film, but it's not necessarily like a universally beloved film and beyond that he he hasn't necessarily made a lot of movies that are huge institutional i i think you're undervaluing how important of a director he was because we can talk about like crime game interview with a vampire are major and then let's just run through the rest of his 
career. Okay. Michael Collins wins the golden from the Lion. crying game, starting from the crying game. Well, no, no, I starting mean, from interview, starting from interview, starting from interview. I it's, mean, but even before then, like, well, like, you know, company of wolves gets, gets, there are people who watched it like Mona Lisa. Mm-hmm. There are people who Willie Rowe reviewed Mona Lisa almost wins Bob Hoskins and the miracle like, people who watched it. Like yeah. it's not, it, it his, his career doesn't start at the crying game. I, I've no. seen his 82 film Angel and I I I kind of love that movie. It's it's kind of one of the better movies about the troubles that has the, ever the, been made. The the point I am making is that when Michael Collins comes out and bombs, when In Dreams comes out and is like widely hated, when The Good Thief comes out and kind of whiffs, there's this sense of like man, what happened to Neil Jordan? We expect more of him. And then even mixed in there, you've got like End of the Affair, it's a comeback from Neil Jordan. Breakfast on Pluto, it's a comeback for Neil Jordan. The Brave One, everyone's like, why is Neil Jordan making this movie? But it's a big hit, right? Like almost gets Jody an Oscar nomination. Um, And then he goes off to- Are you sure about that? Yes. Yes, (laughs) Almost gets her an Oscar nomination. I don't know. Um. But yeah. Okay, let's let's look it up. I think she was close that year. I don't know. He gets nominated for the Golden Globe. Well, that's because it's Jodie Foster. Sure, but let's look at it. Okay, no, I'm 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 reverse calling your bluff. We talked about I'm in the wrong year. I gotta go one year back. Okay. 2007. She's nominated in the Golden Globe against Julie Christie in a way from her. Kate Blanchett, Elizabeth, the Golden Age, Kira Knightley and Kira Knightley and Atonement, and Jolie in a Brave Heart. Um, now, who gets nominated for the Oscars that year? So You're the gonna Oscars, what? You're gonna have to tell me. Yeah, the Oscars that year swap in Marion Cotillard and Elliot Page from comedy, um, and throw in Laura Linney in there. So like. Jody probably Jolie and a Mighty Heart was never happening. It's probably Kira versus jo- Jody Foster for for sixth place that year. I'm just saying. I think it's an easy hand. I don't know. I I people. I, don't know. I think big, even saying even saying up for sixth place. I think that's that's a hard. That was a big comeback for Jody Foster, who hadn't been in anything in a while. That was like liked, right? Yeah. Um. But my point being is that. When Neil Jordan missed back in the day, there was this sense of like, why did Neil Jordan miss? Um, And then he goes off to Ireland and makes this like tiny little movie with Colin Farrell that nobody sees, right? Yeah. Um, And then like everything since then is just released to crickets. Like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be crass. The man made lesbian interview with a vampire with Gemma Arterton and Saoirse Ronan. Like, for puerile reasons, people should have fucking watched Byzantium. Um, Are you aware that he made, like, fucking lesbian fatal attraction with Isabelle Huppert and Chloe Grace Moretz? Like, why are gay men not, like, banging the drum about Greta being a camp (laughs) classic? I've seen Greta. Greta rules, right? Like, this is my point, is that, like, Neil Jordan went back to Ireland and kind of never 
immediately lost all relevancy as a filmmaker. Yeah, I just like I'm just Ancient saying fucking rules. By the way, I'm just saying a lot of these films before Ondine weren't like necessarily relevant either. But I'm saying, Foster I'm saying when you. they did the Brave was a hit. I'm saying when they don't land, people are like what's happening to neil jordan and i'm saying that starting with this movie when they don't land people are like oh neil jordan directed that like five years later you know what i'm saying i guess so his yeah. his imports as a director people expect something of disappears i think he's also just but it's he's also old yeah that's what i'm saying it's like he's the, the same thing's happening to de palma at this time no no because people cared about Domino way more than they cared about Greta. Because sure. people cared about Domino as like, what the fuck is happening here? You know, that Domino was this like tragic disaster. Um, Brave One was a hit. I'm pulling up how much money the Brave One made. <laughs> I just... $70 million? $70 million? Pretty big um... hit. Jodie Foster action movie, $70 million. Hard R two two two. I'm not two saying I'm not long. saying that it's a movie that like nobody cared about. I'm just like I don't think it was as close as being like an important film of that year as as you think it is. Mm. Do we have anything else left to say about Andine? I'm tired. <laughs> it's been too um, <laughs> There are some moments where the Christopher Doyle cinematography is is sure. genuinely breathtaking. Uh, another person and, whose fucking yeah. hot streak dries up because he made Andine. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Uh, can I hit you with Christopher Doyle in the build up to Ondine? Uh cuz obviously we know Christopher Doyle. Should we do should we do Rushmore? No. Because it's just going to be Rushmore? it's going to be whatever three Wong Kar Wai movies we're in the mood for and then Hero. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's a, I that's that's basically it. You know, you know what he did the cinematography for? A film I know you've seen. But Noir et Blanc from 1986. Yes. Outside of Christopher Doyle's longstanding collaborations with Wong Kar Wai. Let me just throw out here, though, that in like the years leading up to this movie, he shoots Hero, the Zhang Yimou movie, like maybe the most beautiful movie ever made. Um, he shoots Philip Noyce's The Quiet American, which is a big Oscar play. He shoots Fruit Chan's Dumplings, which rules. He works with M. Night Shyamalan on Lady in the Water. He works with Gus Van Zandt on Paranoid Park. He works with Jim Jarmusch in The Limits of Control, right? Like, he's broken out of this Hong Kong bubble. Yeah. And it's, like, working with a lot of people. And then, like, I see a lot of movies, and I know about even more movies. I am here to tell you that... Christopher Doyle is definitely still working, but the most notable projects he's done since then are is Magic Magic, a movie that only I've seen, and uh, the Yodorowsky movie nobody saw, which that he shot Magic Magic is insane because have you heard of Magic Magic? Do you know this movie I'm talking about? No. Have you heard of a movie called Crystal Fairy and the Magical Cactus. Perhaps. Crystal Fairy and the Magical Cactus is a like stoner hallucinogen comedy about Michael Sarah and Gabby Hoffman like going on a trip in Chile. Oh, yeah, I have. Actually, it's, yeah. It's direct... I, I might have seen this movie. Yeah. 
it's no, directed it. by it's good it's quite yeah. good it's directed by the chilean filmmaker sebastian silva um what happened was they had gotten the crew there they had gotten michael sarah in chile like everyone was set there and ready to go and then gabby hoffman was like fuck girls is running long the season of girls is running long i'm not gonna be there for like another week and they have this crew sitting there so they basically like get their hands on juno temple somehow and improvise a like erotic thriller called magic magic with juno temple they like bring in Christopher Doyle to shoot that one. He doesn't shoot the real one. He shoots the like one they're using to like not that's waste wild. crew salaries. Is it is it just because he's that's like what he excels in is basically like give him no resources and and Maybe. just let him like because I I know it, Jordan has spoke about him in in interviews for Andine, but I know that one car why speaks about Doyle in the same way as though like he's so confident in the decisions that he's making that he'll make in-camera decisions on the spot that turn out the way the director actually wants it to turn out. So he ends up making the editing process a lot easier for everybody involved. And he makes the shooting process a lot easier for everybody involved because he, as opposed to some other, I think cinematographers who are more obsessive in their perfectionism he is just supremely confident in his own like athletic ability to be able to get the shot at any yeah. given moment. I mean, for all that we think of like the look of those Wong Kar Wai movies as being so sumptuous, we like really can't forget that like Wong Kar Wai, one of Wong Kar Wai's big things is that he is like the first post Godard director to bring like flaws back into the mainstream. Like poorly exposed yeah. shots, weird shutter speeds, like shit goes wrong in Wong Kar Wai movies and he can like figure it out in the edit how to make it look nice. Um, it's 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 like it's one of those things where um, like like he just he's he's the guy that screams like you're you're making something for yeah. limited resources and you're trying not to go on over budget and you can feel comfortable that like you'll actually get th- something made if you have him shooting it for you. But then he also shoots like Hero, which is this very, you know, expensive, opulent, we have all the time in the world to make the most beautiful movie, movie. Yeah. I know Wong Kar Wai, I mean, if if you look at Andy and it's like the same kind of story where it's like Jordan had another film in pre-production, couldn't get that made, went to Ireland with very limited money and very limited time. It was like, I just want to make something during this WGA shutdown. Call in Christopher Doyle and, and you're going to have a product on your hands. Wong Kar Wai, in the process of making certain films, has just decided to pivot and make a whole other film like during yes. that production cycle. Has Christopher Doyle right there, can get the thing done, can get the product made. In, in, in that do, we, do we know why they had the break? I have no idea uh, in terms of like, I have never read something um that is reputable. I I feel like I have listened to other podcasts where people have mentioned that maybe Doyle had some like issues in his personal life. Uh, Doyle has a reputation and, for being kind of a difficult person. Yeah, is what I'm I, going to say politely. I think if you're a, a, a humanist in the way that Wong Kar Wai is, um, you probably just hit a breaking point. Yeah, 
because I they think work that's together. Fair to assume, right? Yeah. yeah. Once they link up with Days of Being Wild, they work together in everything through 2046. And then Darius Kanji shoots My Blueberry Nights. Oh, man. And Philippe Lesourd, who ends up being Sofia Coppola's big, like, contemporary guy, shoots the Grand Master. A, a, a French cinematographer coming off the Will Smith movie, Seven Pounds, shoots the Grandmaster. These films also um, get much more... Con- like, yeah. the ramp-up of everything from Chongqing Express to 2046 is your... Yeah. Multiplying the complexity of what they're attempting to do, I, so I, I I can really see that as being like a breaking point after trying to get that project made. Um, credits credits are also also kind of light on blossoms. This like long gestating, continually evolving TV show that Wong Kar Wai has been shooting for the past couple of years. Um, there is no credit cinematographer on it as of yet. Which leads me to guess that it probably is not a re- reunion with Christopher Doyle because no one would shut up about it being a reunion with Christopher Doyle. Yeah, I would assume uh-huh. so. Um, he's uh, it's something like that the weird Australian duo of Doyle and uh, Dion Beebe. Like at yeah, this, he's Australian. Yeah, at this moment in time, yeah, it's like, like there are guys who are really experimenting with like pushing the limits of what you can do. Uh, yeah. Like, you know, with these democratized filmmaking resources and techniques. Dion BB, stop working with Rob Marshall. He ruins your shots. <laughs> he edits them poorly. Oh, man. You know what rocks is that Dion BB basically took all of COVID off and then came back to do The Little, the Mermaid. Little Mermaid. He shot Gemini Man and The Little Mermaid back to back. Yeah, not not, um, not a great look. Yeah, I think this movie looks nice. I like the sort of like blown out colors that happen in the flashback and like this like downshift into a crime film thing. But then I hate when the color palette shifts into that for the action like climax of the movie. Yeah, yeah, Um, that's not great. Um, There's a shot early on of I think it's when Annie like approaches Andine for the first time and she's like stepping out of the water. And that one shot is 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 pretty breathtaking. Uh, this movie looks nice. It's a beautiful location, yeah. right? Like they're they they know what they're doing with setting something here. They get a lot of lovely, you know, very quiet photography going on. That's it's interesting that yeah. Jordan in the interviews that I read, he's very proud of the day for night photography in this, and sure. he credits a, he credits a lot of it to the way the sun is clouded in rural Ireland and how you don't have like harsh shadows that are supposed to be shadows of moonlight as you do in typical day for night production. Yeah, It's very, it's yeah. not just that it's very dark, but it's very monochromatic in a way that a lot of day for night. I mean, the whole point of doing day for night is to like keep those contrasts, you know? Yeah. And, and the, and the day for night here, I didn't even clock that it was day for night. I was like, I bet Chris Doyle just shot this fucker under the moonlight. How'd you watch this movie? The first time I watched it, I watched it on. I, I literally recently. Well, I'm going to say, I think the first time I watched it, I think I watched it on Showtime or HBO. I was like at my parents' house and uh, they have cable. 
and it was through one of those premium services this time there's just like there's a free option on my roku okay. tv when i searched it and it let me watch it with ads every like 15 minutes okay because i yeah. i got the dvd and i watched the dvd and i found this thing was mixed so like untenably quiet yeah it is that is um so it was that, that's not even the dvd like that's okay the, that's the just a mix of the movie well. yeah yeah and it Another thing that basically was going to like turn me off is like if Colin's going to be this shut off and this interior and then I can't hear anything he's saying, uh, I'm, I'm just not on board with the picture. I'm sorry, Neil. Did you ever did you ever turn it up and get I mean, a DVD is I'm assuming at a lower quality than what I, I watch it in. Which I basically cranked my settings up as as high as they could go. <laughs> we didn't we didn't mention it, but Colin is doing accent work here. Like that's not his native Irish okay. accent. Yeah, sure. It if, if when you have like a, a decent sound reproduction on of the film while you're watching it, it's very clearly not the voice that he speaks okay. with when he's in interviews. Yeah, the yeah. sound on the DVD is just kind of muddy and not very good. Yeah, but um, it's a pretty uniform. I mean, I, I'm not an expert in Irish dialects, so who am I to say? But it it sounds like a pretty it sounds like pretty uniform accent work. I'll me. I'll trust you. Um, um, yeah, I just feel like my take on this movie is just like, eh, eh. and I, I, it doesn't. Usually, I feel like even like the real stinkers like inspire more, more in me to want to like talk on the movie. And this movie just kind of came and went in my brain. Yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, I've seen it twice, so I, I, I just have more to sure. say about it having seen it twice. But the first time I saw it, that was that was very much how I felt. Yeah. Um, He's very skinny in this movie. He's very skinny in this movie. Uh, anything else? You got a game? <laughs> um, I picked the IndieWire version of this list because actually it just disappeared. I picked the IndieWire version of this list uh, because Vulture also had one, but I am out of free Vulture articles. So you want to guess IndieWire's top five mermaid movies? Okay. Ponyo, Ponyo, Fishy in the Sea. Yeah, Ponyo is number one. Yeah, you're goddamn right. Ponyo is yeah. number one because it's the best movie ever made. The thing about Ponyo is that, like, I know you're not allowed to say bad things about Daddy Miyazaki. And I oh know what people are going to want <laughs> to say to me when I say the thing I'm not going about to say, which is that. He's doing it in a very smart fashion. And sure, he's doing it in a very smart fashion. But the CGI in the Miyazaki movies is always bad. Oh, yeah. Always yeah. drives me crazy. No, I, I agree with get... you. It's 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 blocky and smooth yeah. in a way that feels like it does not belong there. And I, I I I get that he's being very thoughtful about like what elements he makes CGI so that they like so feel like they're of a different space than everything else. Yeah. But I still don't like it. And there is something about Ponyo being him like almost 10 years after Spirited Away coming back being like, I'm done with that shit. I'm going to make the most beautiful movie ever made. And it's entirely going to be cell animated. And it's going to be about a little girl and nothing's going to happen. Salute you, how. 
Uh, I'm refusing to look up what his new movie's about, even though it's out in Japan. <laughs> I will walk out of the Why? Because you just you want to go in with no with no understanding, no well, prerequisite understanding of what it is. Normal. Okay, here's the thing. Normally, I am not like a stickler for doing that. I know some people who are sticklers for doing that, going in blind as much as possible, and I think it's a little performative. But Connor, I don't know if you know this. They just released that movie in Japan with no trailer, no plot synopsis, the poster just being a sketch of a drawing that had been sitting around there for several years. Really? They just put that movie out because they know how big of a deal Miyazaki is. No, I'm I'm like you. I think I've yeah. I, every Miyazaki film I've watched, I other than like I've seen con- I've seen art from the films, exactly. but I've kind of refused to like look up what the well, film is about normally beforehand. normally i don't yeah. do that but like because that's how they opened this one in japan that they were like it's miyazaki trust us we're not going to tell you anything about it i know g kids isn't going to hold to that for when they do the u.s release mm. but i'm gonna try to hold for that i think the only one i kind of knew what it was about beforehand was princess mononoke which like the amount I knew of it beforehand it supplied me with nothing actually going into the film. Yeah. Like I was completely taken aback. Like I had no, I I, I was not prepared in any way <laughs> for right. for what I was actually about to see. Is um, this a top five mermaid movie list? There's oh, 23, but I'm just going to ask you about the top five. Okay. Um, this is also, I forgot to mention, this is a list from two months ago because certain movie for, came for out Little two mermaid. months ago. Okay. Yeah. Is the Musker and Clements film, The Little Mermaid on the list? Yep. Number... Four. Yeah. Is the yeah. secret of Roan Inish on the list? It could be, but it's not in the top five. That's rude. Is the lure in, on the list? I I th- I think it's on the list, but it's I don't think it's in the top five. Okay. Have you seen I mean the lure? it's not it's not in the top five, but I I yeah. have a feeling okay. that it is on the list. Ha- have you seen the lure? Secret of Roan Inish is 15. I have seen the lure. The That's lures. um uh lucille uh how do you pronounce your last name i have no idea i don't i don't speak polish she Uh, was gaspar noe's girlfriend or current no 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 you're confusing you're confusing two filmmakers this is um you're thinking of lucille uh his wife yeah uh oh the lure yeah wait is the lore the musical yes Okay, what am I thinking? Which one's the one that I'm thinking of? You're thinking of Lucille Hajahalovic, I would say, is I would guess. She also made a film that's like kind of sure a mermaid film. The The um, Lures by Agnieszka Smokzinska, I would guess. I really cannot pronounce Polish. I so apologize. Um, the Lure is just interesting because the Lure is like a complete masterpiece like just this like athena erupting from zeus's head like fully formed aesthetic work of genius and then both of her follow-up movies stink which sucks sorry Um, my my uh dyslexic brain no that's fine (laughs) um was thinking about the film the 2015 film evolution by lucille had a little bit which is a the Uh, one of hers i have not seen 
It's um, it's not explicitly a mermaid film, but it could be read okay. as being a mermaid film. I saw Innocence, or did I see Evolution and not Innocence? No, I think I saw Evolution and I didn't see Innocence. I did see Evolution. That movie's fine. Um, and then Earwig, her most recent movie, which is not very good, unfortunately. Um, okay, give me hints then, because those are all the mermaid movies I know. Okay, number five is from 2019. Um, I would, I would, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily classify it as a mermaid movie, but um, um, there's a good argument for it being a mermaid movie american yes big name director sort of oscar uh i don't know off the top of my head not definitely but not it, like could have picture been. or anything like that but it could have been it had like a, a unbelievable amount of hype going into did, release a 2019 weekend. movie that might be about a mermaid it's, that was it's, crazy. Hype. It's not about a mermaid, but there is uh mermaid iconography in the film. Mermaid iconography in the film. It is black and white. It's the lighthouse. Yes, of it is course. Lighthouse. Yeah. Okay. Sure. It's not. It's not as good as the lure, nor is it as good of a mermaid movie as the lure. David Ehrlich. What's number four? <laughs> Hit me with number four. Uh, number four is Little Mermaid. So you already guessed. Little oh yeah. Mermaid. Number three is. Number three is from 1984. Splash. Yes. Tom Hanks and Daryl Hannah. Yeah. Uh, um, you want to know a true story about Splash? Sure. Uh, that's what the Splash Mountain is named after. <laughs> Wait, really? Yeah. Wait, no, it's not. Yes, is it, it is. really? Yes, it is. Hundred percent. Wait. Was... <laughs> yeah, that's how long theme park rides take to build. <laughs> They were they were originally thinking of having wait, to be a wait, splash. Yeah, I'm like red. I'm like wait a second because I, I don't necessarily want to talk about the IP that that Splash Mountain is like Splash, about, but um, Splash Mountain was conceived of as a water themed ride that they were like, well, we have a mermaid movie, so maybe we tie it into Splash, and then they closed down, and then one they were the... like, let's go with Song of the South. Well, no, truly, <laughs> truly. So this is what happens is. Then they like sit on it for a couple of years and then they put Song of the South out again in 85 and it does really good business. And that's the last time Disney's let Song of the South get released. But right around that time, they closed down. I can't remember what it's called, but it's one of the singing animal animatronic shows that they used to have that used to be really big at Disney. They closed one of those down. So they have all these like animal animatronics they need to do something with and they're like they just throw them well, into the splash mountain <laughs> exactly they're like well we can make it song of the south scene that's an easy reskit and we lo- and everyone loves that song and this movie was still a big hit so that's why song splash mountain is song of the south themed wow. it's because it was cheap to make it song of the south themed but Going into it, they were thinking it was going to be Tom Hanks and Daryl Hannah themed, and that's why it's called Splash Mountain. Man, that just blew my mind. You know they finally pulled the trigger on the re re remodel on that, right? Yeah, that was like a couple of years ago, though. Right? Uh, they it just closed. It they it just closed, oh, okay. and they're now like as of this year, I think it closed in January. As of this year, they're doing the construction, but like listeners. If you want to know how long it takes for them to do something at those parks, and and the reason it takes them forever to do something at the parks is because those parks are complicated (laughs) and prep work. You need to do a lot of prep work before you can break ground in anything. They have closed down Splash Mountain to remake it. 
I mean, it's still going to be a log flume drop ride, but it's going to be Princess and the Frog themed. Princess and the Frog is a 15-year-old movie. They have, in fact, been talking about making that switch over since that movie came out. Uh, they didn't just have that idea. It just takes fucking forever. I'm surprised they never just did Little Mermaid. Like, I'm surprised that never happened. You have to rebuild the entire interior. But they're go- they're going to end up doing it. But you got but you got to remember that switching it over to Princess and the Frog, you still keep the Southern American theming because it's in New Orleans Square, and you still get to keep using the animal robots. It's 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 a much smaller turnover to switch from Song sure. of the South to Princess and the Frog than it is from Song of the South to Little Mermaid. Sure, maybe. I feel like it's enough of a turnover that's like you might as well just have done eh. the Little Mermaid. Earlier. I think they want to keep the New Orleans theming. That's fair. Because that whole I mean, area, that whole area is New Orleans themed. That whole area of the park? Yeah. I, I, I wasn't oh, yeah. aware of that. The whole area looks like old school New Orleans, and that's where Pirates of the Caribbean and the Haunted Mansion are, because those both also have New Orleans huh. theming in their designs, right? Have and not so, been to Disney since 2005. Yeah. Oh, that's always been. It's always been that way. Well, I just don't. Uh, I like, yeah. you know, I was just at Disneyland. I love Disneyland. Um, um So what? Number, number two, four? you got one left. Yeah. Number two is from 2017. I feel like you're going to get it. 2017. A year I do not remember. It's the film of this year. Oh, that's not a mermaid movie. <laughs> that's yeah. not a mermaid movie. Just because they pull Killian Murphy out of the water in Dunkirk does not make him a mermaid. <laughs> uh, no, of course, the movie of the year is a ghost story, which is a movie that doesn't, I'm kidding. Just because there's a mermaid statue in John Wick 2 doesn't make it a mermaid movie. <laughs> um, other things I could reference, Baywatch. There was a Baywatch movie that year. Uh, Aquaman. I like how you didn't make a joke. Asleep. You're just like, there yeah, was a Baywatch movie that year. There was a Baywatch year. movie <laughs> yeah. that year. Uh, Baywatch, a movie that has scripted bloopers. Um, no, it's The Shape of Water, a bad it's movie. the Florida Project. Was Wait, that 2017? is it? Yeah. No, 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 no. That it's, movie's it's, whatever. It's the shape of water. Yeah. You you know I'm a little down on Sean. I know, yeah. Yeah. Florida Project's it's fine. Like, it's not a stinker me. like Red Rocket. Um Yep, it is the uh the shape, the of, shape water. of water. A movie that won the Academy Award for Best As you said, picture. not a mermaid movie. Um just to just but just let's just gang. I need I remind you. That movie won the best Academy Award for Best Picture in a field that included Lady Bird, Get Out, Dunkirk, and Phantom Thread. And we gave it to The Shape of Water. <laughs> Phantom Thread was in there. Cole, how do you feel about Dunkirk? I don't think we've ever spoken oh, about it's Dunkirk. It's a perfect movie. Is this it best going, movie. Is Dunkirk going to go down like, like 15 years from now? We're going to be like... How did Dunkirk not win every single? Yes, of course. That year, it's his yeah. best movie. It's a masterpiece. I would gesture to say it's like in the top five of war films. Maybe the way I yeah, think about it's it, incredible. the way I think about it now. Uh, I don't. I don't. I. I feel like we were not rapturous enough. You know, when it came out. I have regret as a viewer for the for the entire movie going community. You know. You know how I know that movie's a, a, a masterpiece. Because oh. all the people who really like you to know how much they don't like Christopher Nolan just got 
real quiet in 2017. <laughs> they were real loud in 2014. Yeah. And they were real loud in 2020. And they're being real loud right now. I, w- I was. But they I just was. <laughs> conveniently just got real quiet for six months there. I, w- I was having a great time reading the reviews that are coming out today. And it's just like rapturous review, rapturous review, David Ehrlich, Christopher <laughs> Nolan has issues. <laughs> but like, um, what's, the, what's the case against Dunkirk? Because like, I get the case against Tenet, okay? I'm not going to sit here and pretend I don't understand yeah. why people don't appreciate Tenet. I get it. What's the case against Dunkirk? It's too great like it's rude to everyone else that he made a movie that good like what are you gonna say about it i don't know man like i i couldn't tell you i couldn't tell you why people would would it's he he's just he's one of those filmmakers i think it's mostly because of inception i think it's partly because of the dark knight that as opposed to when he makes a film people wanting to celebrate just the fact that he has another film coming out it it becomes this game of how can i poke holes in the yeah. new christopher nolan project that well was just released. it's because for a while there he was such like the lazy film bro choice that people were like yeah elevating him but the thing you got to understand is i get that you want to like take shots at nolan when nolan's at his like commercial peak because his fans are annoying but 13 years after Inception, when Denis Villeneuve and Matt Reeves have kind of sidled into that spot, but have the added bonus of actually being talentless filmmakers, <laughs> uh, like, let Nolan go and make some Denny jokes, you know? Yeah. You can't make fun of Denny because he's foreign. Yeah. He's, so. yeah. he's artistic because he speaks French. Yeah, but he's Quebecois, and the Quebecois are trash. <laughs> the only right. uh, I just want to point the out the only good from the person Lagoon to ever is... come from Quebec is Xavier Dola, R.I.P. King. You flew too close to the sun. Sure, sure, sure. Um, Creature from the Black Lagoon is uh, number seven on this list. I just want to point that Not out. A so it's like they put both them on the list as mermaid films. Can I say something about Xavier Dola? Sure. I mean, like, we've never, I've never spoken about. You saw that he, you, but you saw that he said he's retiring from filmmaking, right? I've always been, I've seen, I've seen his movies. I've always been skeptical. Like they've never, they've I, I've never, seen his movies and they're good. They've uh, never, and they're good times and I like them. Um, I will believe that you feel that way about them. when, when he said he was retiring from filmmaking, which I'll believe it when I see it, Xavier. Um, when he said he was retiring from filmmaking, this rumor started going around Twitter. This like rumor that had been around for a while but came back up started going around Twitter, which is that when he was on the con jury in 2015, he vetoed Carol for the Palm Door and basically bullied them into picking the consensus choice, which was Jacques Odiard's Deepon. And if I can just say, 
if Xavier Dolan is the reason Jacques Odiard has a palm door instead of Todd Haynes, Xavier Dolan should be president of the world. Like he should never pay for a drink ever in his life because Jacques Odiard is like maybe the greatest living filmmaker <laughs> and Deepon fucking rules. Sure. <laughs> You're going to uh... tell me that any Todd Haynes movie is as good as a prophet. You're lying to me. I'm sorry. I don't want to like. I don't want to get into this. I, like that th- that question of competition between the two is 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 not something that I'm necessarily interested in. Um, am I a fan of Xavier Dolan? No. You know, uh, it's only the end of the world is a really good movie. I don't know what you want me to say. Do you remember when he did the fucking Numa Numa needle drop? And it's only the end of the world. That that was that was pretty good. Um, Can I just say? The most insane I've ever felt is when Dan showed us the Numa Numa video. And, <laughs> and I was like, A, the only person he, he who didn't knows that though. Somebody else picked it, right? Regardless. They're yeah. like, I, in a room full of, well, like, obviously, some of the people in our cohort were like infants, but a room full of people who were mostly my age, that I was the only person who knew. What that was, what Newgrounds was, that is called Drag Ascendente, that it's by Ozone. Like, you weren't the only person, though. I think I felt like I was the only person. I, I, I was right there with you. I, 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 that's like prime. That Zabia Dola put a scene in one of his movies where Leia say, Look, there were people in our song. There were people in our cohort who were younger than me, but not by that much, mm. where it's like they've seen the Numa Numa video. They don't know I, the lore. They don't I know did, the lore. How could you not know the lore? They've never seen Numa Numa 2. New Numa. Uh, have you know. seen New Numa? I have, yeah. I think you're I think I think people just I don't I, that was a strange experience to watch those videos. So I don't I just don't think people were reacting in a, in an audible way that was like, "Oh, I recognize this. I'm having fun while this is happening." Do we have anything else to say about Andine? No. Yeah. Do you have do you like if you had to recommend Neil Jordan to a young see, crowd, I am I am you... not the world's biggest Neil Jordan fan. I just think he's a big deal director, and I think he deserves his respect for that. If I was going to tell you to watch one of them, I would tell you to watch The Company of Wolves, which is a okay. really terrific, like great, like dark fairy tale movie. I, you know, it's interesting. I, I would say go two years before to Angel. Yeah, you you yeah. love Angel. A, Mona Lisa film. also very good. Uh, Greta a lot of fun. Crying Game. They, we're, there's a lot. Angel, in my opinion, is one of the better films about the Troubles because it's okay. not trying to make any kind of ethical statement about what the Troubles represents. It is just kind of showing this nearly schizophrenic descent into violence that it is like producing within the citizens of Northern Ireland. Uh, produced by uh, John Borman. Yeah. Bormania running wild, baby. Neil Jordan, we never mentioned, he produced uh, the intermission. Yes, I think yeah, we said that and, on that episode. And John Crowley produced Andine. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, I think that's it, though, for this week's episode. Um, Please remember to uh, rate and review and subscribe. Uh, Connor, you want to plug the Instagram? It's at above the title pod. 
uh tell a friend if you like the show um i'd say shout out to our one listener in singapore but uh Data is telling me that our one listener in Singapore has stopped listening to the podcast. Oh, no. Uh, apparently, we said something on the, real. apparently, we said something on the Scrubs episode to offend them. That's uh, when they That's, that's when they the last download we got from Singapore. Um, Damn. Yeah, hopefully next week we're coming back with triage. <laughs> we're working on it, gang. And uh, maybe we'll be talking about uh what is it crazy heart <laughs> i guess like i said maybe we will be talking about the movie oppenheimer <laughs> there's no canonical release knows? order for yeah. these 2009 movies because the festival orders and the commercial orders and the commercial orders in any country are all completely shuffled but hopefully we're going to talk about triage next week until then, I'm going to go back to a classroom and say fuck the English. Stopping up like a lice. I can feel it coming.